Operation Red Pill. You know us, just two guys going beyond conspiracy theories and getting right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host Christopher Dean. Cha-ching! Join us as we go behind enemy lines to reveal the truth about another aspect of this occult matrix as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing. Financing wokeism, how corporations are used for social engineering. Is American capitalism a free market system designed to produce the greatest economic good or is it a Luciferian financial bondage system that exploits human greed for the advancement of the fallen ones? We're going to talk Talk about this and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill. Ladies, gentlemen, those blinded by dollar green signs of dominance and those championing wokeism's promise of social justice. Everyone from across the podverse, welcome back. To another episode of Operation Red Pill, where we do like to take you beyond conspiracy theories and hopefully get you right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. Now, listen, I know you saw the title. You thought to yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are they talking about here? Financing wokeism? I don't even know if that's a thing. I'm here to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, it's a thing. And because it's a thing, we got to examine a few things about it. Now, listen, we got to talk about the founding and corruption of publicly traded companies because that's a big situation going on right now. And then we're going to ease our way right on into the three businesses that control the majority share of almost every publicly traded company out there. And then I think we might find a way to meander right onto this thing called ESGs, CEIs and DEIs. Now, what is that? Is that is that some corporation logo for where you're trading on the stock index? No, that's something we got to talk about here. That's really influencing the way things are going. They're manipulating the population by influencing social thinking. And we got to get into that. But before we can cover any of that ground, I need y'all to help me look around here because my co-host is lost in the back rooms of the stock trading company. He is looking around in these rooms for more information to get to y'all. And I need y'all to help me find my co-host, Mr. Christopher Dean. How's it going, bro? Um, I'm doing all right, Mr. Dean. How are you doing today? Not bad. Not bad. I'm a little inundated myself. Inundated. I'm inundated with the amount of content we got to cover today. This is a major topic. It's a major episode. <laughs> and I know yeah. I say that a lot, right? Most of these uh-huh. openings, I'm like, we got a lot to talk about. But this one, this one left me feeling some kind of way as I went through the notes. This one left me feeling some type of way when I was prepping the episode. This is the, the, the um, what is it, the brainchild of like 20 hours of research. This, this was work. Yes, I could tell going through it. And what didn't help was that as I was going through the notes, I kept my brain kept firing off with different things that we need to talk about. <laughs> I'm like, oh, we got to talk about this. If we're going to talk about that, we definitely got to get into this. Oh, well, we can't forget that over here. This has got to be covered. In fact, I had to go back into the archives and I had to go over something. Holy Spirit brought it back to my remembrance. Like, hey, don't forget to talk about this. And I said, man. I, I read that like a year and a half ago. I haven't touched it <laughs> since then. Okay. And I'm not even sure what book it's in. But then I could see the book. I could see the page, but I don't have the page. now. I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to have to go search this whole thing out. And I think it's really cool 
how the Holy Spirit puts together some of these episodes, the different pieces he brings together to make an episode. Yeah. Because it's not as organic as people might think. No. And even like, not to, not to take away from your story, but even the like the structure of this episode a little bit, there was a point when I was just, because I had so much to learn myself for this, there's a point where I'm just throwing stuff in the note, right? Right, right. And then I go through it and I'm, you know, doing the flow, telling the story or whatever. And it, the stuff lined up and I was like, all right, Holy Spirit, thank you for that. Like it's I a didn't little have scary. to even move a lot of stuff. Yeah, it was crazy. Because I'm sure when you're putting it together, it doesn't feel like the Holy Spirit's like, now, now, Christopher, go ahead and write this section here. And then that's going to flow right into that section. You're going to be good. Right. No, it didn't feel like that at all. Nah, that's funny. That's funny. Well, listen, man, let's go ahead and dive into it. And let's get into some of the stuff we got to talk about. Before we do, man, I want to say this. I have been noticing something going on in the public that's got me a little baffled. Okay. I've seen companies recently make some very significant, what I would think to be, uh, corporate missteps and how they've handled themselves in the public sphere. I'm thinking about companies like Disney. Mm-hmm. Amazon, um, Target, Anheuser-Busch, even Ford Motor Company. And we saw recently with Disney that they have gotten their hands slapped by the public for putting out these woke, idealistic movies and shows. Things that have not done well at all. You know, you can look at the All MCU right. and you can see that that the the Sheverse has not been doing well. All of the shows <laughs> they've pushed from She-Hawk to the Marvels, uh, what they did in, in the last uh, was that Captain America, not Captain America, uh, Doctor Strange in the okay. multiverse of madness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a lot of stuff that they've done recently has not done well. And it seems to have had a lot of content that comes from this whole wokeism and woke ideology. Disney. After a year of MCU failures, Disney Star Wars duds and multiple flops, including Strange World and Lightyear. Getting involved in politics and losing billions in streaming, I guess it should be no surprise that they fired their CEO Bob Chapek while he was at an Elton John concert in the middle of the night on a Sunday and replaced him with Bob Iger, the architect of all of these failures. You look at at Target, Target lost a huge amount of money, billions of dollars in market cap due to their push recently of this this Satanist clothing line. And you're like, what? Okay. Why would you shoot yourself in the foot for that? You look. Well, I'm at, glad they lost money. Me, me too. Uh, you, you look at Amazon. Amazon released what was it? The, uh, the a sequel to the the Lord of the Rings. Oh, that was so bad. Yeah, yeah. That's been the overall feedback mm-hmm. that it's been absolutely horrible. In any other year, everything on our list would be worthy of the top spot if it wasn't for Amazon's billion-dollar disaster. Number one, the Rings of Power. One failure to rule them all. In hindsight, Amazon really should have known that once the guy got caught pissing in the corner at their trailer premiere, they were in for a long year. Every single Rings of Power teaser, teaser trailer, clip, or promotional clip ratioed into oblivion. 
And because we here at Nerdrotic are happy to provide services you didn't know you needed, we did the math for you. The total ratio at time of recording out of 47 videos uploaded on Prime Video's YouTube channel is 489,326 likes to 4,091,260 dislikes, not counting the over 1 million YouTube deleted. Amazon getting caught deleting thousands of comments on YouTube. YouTube getting caught deleting millions of dislikes. The very scripted and cringe UK superfans video being unlisted. This was all in the first month of the promotional rollout, and it was all downhill from there. And it seems like they too were trying to follow this, this new wokeism agenda. You look at Anheuser-Busch, who lost so much money trying to pair up with the social transgender social influencer to sell beer. I'm like, beer's a staple of a blue-collar industry. Like, they don't need sexuality to be put with their product. Right, right. All you need is a slogan. Beer's here. <laughs> beer's here. That's it. That, that's, it. <laughs> that's all you need. You don't even need half-naked women to sell it. <laughs> it sells itself. That's funny. Right? Speaking of half-naked women, the automotive industry normally likes to use women to sell its products. And you mm-hmm. have Ford Motor Company taking their brand new F-150 Raptor and in one of their commercials actually wrapping it in a Pride logo. Wow. And we're just like, yo, what, what, what's happening here? You know, what what's going on with these companies that they're making these type of of erroneous missteps that are actually shooting themselves in the foot with their, their customer base and costing themselves billions of dollars in the process. Well, we talk on this podcast on whether or not things like this are just the natural outpouring of the human condition Mm -hmm. or whether there's an agenda put in place to achieve a goal. And ladies and gentlemen, we aren't going to bury the lead on this one. There is 100% an agenda put in place to achieve a sinister goal. And sector three of the satanic control matrix is about global control, you know, the new world order. Or as we learned in our previous episode, uh, the new Atlantis, it's about expanding the empire to the affecting of all things possible. That's crazy. Right. And right here in the heart of that sector is where we find ourselves in this episode. We often think of politics and war when it comes to, you know, the one world order and, and, and the things that are changing. And even the savvy person will recognize that the one world currency is, is about global control. But it isn't discussed often enough the role that corporations actually play in the consolidation of power worldwide. Okay. And there's, there, there's two sides of the, of the coin, consolidation of power. And we need to remember this. Just like, you know, we talk about propaganda. When you hear propaganda, you need to think manipulation, and I'm probably being lied to. But when we see or hear consolidation of power, we need to think widespread submission. Oh, you know, that's one of those words that people don't like. Nobody well, likes well, I mean, not, not widespread. There's a half the population doesn't have a problem <laughs> with that one. <laughs> but the, the submission part, ironically, the other half of the population probably has a problem <laughs> with that one. So you put these together, there's going to be a lot of conflict going on, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You didn't see that left turn coming, did you? (laughs) I did not, not at all. (laughs) That was a button hook left turn. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) But no, the the widespread submission is, is, 
It's in the physics of the consolidation of power because as the number of controlling agents shrinks, the number of the controlled agents gets larger. What do you mean by that? So like when the, I mean, the number of people that are controlling things, unless we're killing people off, then the, the, the rest of the population is left under the control of the, the group that's, that's shrinking and shrinking. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think I get it. I'm a little slow right now. No, it's all right. And so many times when people think consolidation of power, it's, it's just the, the amount of power and like who controls it, but you really have to be, look at the, the, the depth of everything that's happening and the fewer people that have control just, just by the nature of that changing, the more people are being controlled. Yeah. That's not a way I've looked at power. So I think, um, when we watched the West Wing, one of the things they talked about was how people in D.C. tend to look at the fact that there seems to be a, a finite amount of power in that city and everybody's vying for it. OK, right. Just over the amount of power. And if I get it, then I got all the power, but not necessarily considering that the more power I get, the more control I've got over a, a larger group of, of people. Mm. Sometimes it's just this pursuit of power motivating people and then sometimes it's it's the pursuit of controlling people that's really the motivating factor okay and the relationship between controlled people and amount of power that that a person has i mean it's kind of interesting idea that i hadn't thought about okay cool but i i think it's it's that uh it's in the particulars there of how the luciferian agenda has actually taken over corporate america because Hmm. first the control then the forced behavior. And we're seeing, you know, as we have this entire past decade, the terraforming of the world nations into an environment suitable for the replacement Christ. You know, this is Satan or the dragon's attempt to steal the title deed of the earth and wage war on the heavens. You know, like we've said before, the destiny of the heavens is nailed to the earth and the destiny of the earth is nailed to humans. So the first step is a monopoly on the human market. Okay. You know, how do corporations um, help achieve this goal is, is one of the things we're going to tackle. But to even get into that, we got to know even what a corporation is. So, Jason, what? how would you define a corporation? Man, what you coming at me like that for, man? Am I getting interviewed here? I don't have definitions yes. off the top of my head just waiting. How yes, would I define? No, I don't. <laughs> how would I define a corporation? If Just asked. Uh, I would say it's probably one of four business models that can be established, uh, that being an LLC, LLP, an S-corp, and then an incorporation or, you know, incorporated, which would be a corporation that okay. exists for, for business filing purposes. But I don't know if that's correct. Well, according to Wikipedia... It says that a corporation is an organization, usually a group of people or company authorized by the state to act as a single entity, a legal person in legal context, and recognized as such in law for certain purposes. It says early incorporated entities were established by charter, which would be like approval by the the queen or whatever governing agency. They weren't called corporations. They were chartered businesses or chartered groups of people. But most jurisdictions now just allow the creation of a corporation through registration. Hmm. 
It says corporations come in many different types, but are usually divided by the law of the jurisdiction where they're chartered based on two aspects. So they're divided by two aspects, whether or not they can issue stock or whether they are formed to make a profit. Say what? Yes. No. Okay. That doesn't seem (laughs) to jive. You don't think so? No. Well, when you take what you normally would would assume to be the purpose for a business, you know, you hear this this moniker all the time. You go into business to make money. Mm-hmm. Right. That's why you go into business, son, to make money. Even the dope man understands this at the end of the corner. Not my corner. <laughs> not, not where I reside. But, but on, some on the corner other well, some corner somewhere. Yeah, he knows. this. <laughs> he is not okay. going into business for his idea of stocks. And right. Normally, I would think the the reason companies issue stock is to make profit, right? I wouldn't think that there's a a delineation between the two types. Right. I wouldn't think that either, but that's how the law sees it. You're either here to issue stock or you're here to make a profit. That's mind-boggling. Yeah. I mean, off the rip. Okay. Well, that's going to raise a question to me. What is stock? Okay. So a stock is an indivisible portion of a corporation that can be purchased. And this will allow the corporation to gain capital with every stock that it sells, which is money for the, the company to use. The benefit of owning the stock and giving a company your capital or your money is that you get to own a portion of the company and based off of the percentage of the company you own, it pays you back. The money paid out to the stockholders or the shareholders is called a dividend and it's usually paid from a portion of the corporation's profit. But the crazy thing Here's the even crazier thing, is that the board of directors of a corporation, they will generally govern a corporation for the benefit of the shareholders. As opposed to? Making a profit. As opposed to ensuring uh, employees stick around. Hmm. So this, this means that those that hold majority shares hold majority influence in the company's operations. Okay, I can already see problems, but it's too early. <laughs> it's too early for me to talk about. But the okay, stocks okay. thing, oh man, that's 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 tickling my fancy, man. I, I got stuff to say about that. Okay, you gonna do it now? Or you bring it up later? Nah, you gotta bring it up later. You just gotta remind me. Okay, I'll try to. I'll try to remember. I don't know if you're gonna know where to bring it up. Yeah, I'm not sure. So, um, <laughs> hey, Jason, do you remember that thing you're gonna say about stocks? Thanks for reminding me, bro. <laughs> Definitely appreciate it. <laughs> You fulfilled your obligation. <laughs> Thanks. I'm, I'm I'm glad. Yes. But but this whole this whole bit of research or conversation, it, it pushed me to to ask the question like, okay, so if this is the case, then where did the entire idea of running a a company where did it originate? Sh- yeah, where did where did it come from? Like to even have an idea of of shares and and running your company for those people versus just making a profit. You know, so what was the first publicly traded company? And the, uh, the, the amount of, of research and misinformation and contentions and history that I came across is, is staggering. So real quick, before we get into it, because first publicly traded company, the Dutch East India Company. Is that the company but, that I hear referenced in Pirates of the Caribbean when Jack Sparrow believe, is commissioned? I believe that the one... Empire to the Caribbean. I'd have to go back and look. I think that's just the East India Company. Oh. Unfortunately for me, I am a child of the cinema. So I have to take all of my real life experiences and run them through the cinema world that I have experiences in. 
And like I have I've never heard of the dust the the Dutch East India Company or the East India Company. Except from Pirates of the Caribbean. It, that is it. Well, that's not even a bad place to start because in Pirates of the Caribbean, you see the corruption and you see how I was so confused until I did this research. I was like, how is a company like imprisoning people and like sentencing people to death? Like it just seemed so weird. And I actually struggled with the whole suspension of disbelief because I'm like, what is happening? Like what <laughs> what businesses get to do this? I was so confused. Now you're saying this but, like when you were watching Pirates of the Caribbean or while you were doing this research? No, while I was watching Pirates of the Caribbean. I was like, you're just the you're just the East India Company. Like, I don't get it. I love the way your mind works. You got all of this back information that you've got to run this through. I'm just taking notes on <laughs> what is a Dutch India company? I ain't never heard of that. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. But before we get into that, there's this little thing that I want to uh, highlight and in a point of contention and confusion I found around the Rothschilds. All right. What's that? So most of us understand or believe that Mayor Amschel Rothschild was the one to establish the Rothschild financial dynasty. Yeah, that's what I've heard put forth constantly. Right. And he was Mayor Amschel Bauer before, right? And then, Mm -hmm. you know, the Mm -hmm. the red shield over his place of business or his home. And he's like, oh, well, that's how I'm going to change the name. Well, it's it's real interesting because in looking at the Dutch uh, East India Company, Several sources said that the the House of Rothschild joined with the House of Orange, and this was the royal family that commissioned the Dutch East India Company in 1600. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense because my understanding, Mayor Amschel, I think he was born in in 1744. Mm -hmm. So we're like at least a hundred and some odd years removed from this this whole equation. So I'm like, "How, how is this possible? And I, there's actually a website, RothschildArchive.com. I don't necessarily think that we can trust it. That's exactly what I was about to ask. <laughs> but I've, it even has um, information that, that, that doesn't make any sense. So he, they say that the Rothschild name can be traced back to the 16th century ancestor to a 16th century ancestor of Mayor Amschel Rothschild. So he was 1744 to 1812, but Isaac Elkanan, weird name, E-L-C-H-A-N-A-N, Elkanan. He took the name Rothschild from a small house he occupied at the southern end of the uh, Jugnasi called the Rotten Shield. So it's the same story, you know, Rothschild, Red Shield, because it's on the building. But RothschildArchive.com takes it all the way back to Isaac Rothschild in in the 1500s, mid mid to late 1500s. Okay. But on the same exact website, if you look up the family tree, the family tree of the Rothschild starts with Mayor Amschel. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I'm, I was looking at this and I was getting a little irritated and I was like, you know what? You, you got to take it with a grain of salt. We know that history has been washed. We know that we've, we're just getting bits of information. So it is possible that the Rothschild dynasty actually began in the 1500s with Isaac, changed his name to Rothschild, and then the Rothschild family joined the House of Orange and then just a couple of years later opened the Bank of Amsterdam. Okay. I think it was uh, 1609. So this was the, the first 
central bank. A lot of people recognize that the Bank of Amsterdam was the first central bank. So it's possible that the Rothschilds were even involved all the way back in 1609. But here's the thing to take away. It's not really about the Rothschilds. Like that's one of the things that we highlight in this show. It's not about the bloodline or the name because we really understand that it's the um, it's the powers and the principalities and the rulers of the unseen realm. Exactly. That's yeah. That's that's the ones driving the agenda. That's the ones driving the the methodology and everything. So whether or not it was the Rothschilds, I think we're safe to say that it's the spirit of the Rothschilds would have been involved all the way back in the 1600s, especially if we're talking about a central bank and how those are set up to utilize um, Babylonian money magic to control people through debt slavery. So if it is the spirit of the Rothschilds, then that would have been in play, 1609, joining of the, the House of Orange and the formation of this Bank of Amsterdam. Now, there's a little bit of pushback. There's some people that are like, it's, it's not a central bank. You know, even though they were able to print their own money, they didn't necessarily control the value of it. And they weren't a public lender and they only lent money to the government in emergencies. And for mm. me, I'm like, oh, that's perfect. Cause it necessitates the, the, the need for emergencies. That's a little necessitates the need. No, I think that works. Okay. Yeah. Necessitates the need for emergencies. Yeah. You're right on point. Because they they would have a a uh, a vested interest in creating right. emergencies. The more emergencies, the more we can lend to the government. The more control we get, the more money we get. All of it, yeah. Vicious and I'm cycle. guessing that as they're lending, they're lending at interest. Oh, absolutely! You don't lend without interest. That's crazy talk. I mean, Bible tells you to at least when you're lending to a fellow Israelite. It tells you the foreigners you can charge interest to. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. But it's also got a totally different system on how to handle debt so that you right. don't create debt slaves, mm-hmm. which is what I'm wondering if this system's designed to do. I think so, for sure. I mean, loaning out to a government and the emergencies and creating a condition by which you can create emergencies to increase loans sounds mm-hmm. like you're going to create a debt slave of the government. And then right, by extension, right. probably it's people. Exactly. Exactly. And then it's in the midst of this joining, whether the, the Rothschilds or the spirit of the Rothschilds join the House of Orange right in this time. They're developing the central bank in 1602. So right in the same time frame, we get the Dutch East India Company. That's when it was formed. Okay. And it was given um, a royal, and at this point, like I said, Rothschild charter to wage war uh, imprison and execute convicts, negotiate treaties, strike its own coins, and establish colonies. The company gets to do this. Yeesh. Yes. That is a lot um, of power. It is a lot of power. Yes. So you might have heard the Dutch East India Company called the VOC. The, that's the abbreviation for it. Wait, what is it? VOC. Okay. Like Victor Oscar Charlie. Okay. And that's because, and I was going to try to say it, but in Dutch, it's just called the East India Company. But in that language, it's VOC. And the first word has got like 15 different E's in it. And I'm like, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. There's no way. 
So it's known as the Dutch East India Company, but its abbreviation is VOC. So that's a little bit confusing, but but it kind of makes sense. All right. So this was the first publicly traded company, or you could even say that the VOC under Rothschild control was the first multinational corporation. Really? Mm-hmm. All right. So the idea of yeah, the idea of chartered businesses or a corporation actually began um, began in Rome. So the state would recognize a group of individuals doing business as a single body. And that's where we get the, the term corporation because this group of people is functioning as a single body. Interesting. Companies before the East India Company would just borrow capital from like a small group of people within their circle. But the VOC was the first company to issue what's called an IPO, which is initial public offering. They sent it out and said, any Dutchman, any citizens of the area can actually buy stock in the company. This is the first time in the world this happens. You're kidding me. Huh? Oh, this is fascinating. Yeah. Oh, it's it's crazy. And and here we, we start to see a little bit of the um, the corruption because there's the Dutch East India Company. And then, like we were saying, Pirates of the Caribbean, the East India Trading Company. Same name, just one's in another language. So it took me a minute to kind of like the Francis Bacon issue. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like, which one are we talking about? So this was established in 1602. Dutch East India, or sorry, Dutch East India Company, 1602. East India Company, 1600. So already my suspicions are high. Like two different languages, two different royal bloodlines, establishing the same company with the same name. And listen to this. The East India Company, the EIC, was an English and later British joint stock company founded in 1600 and dissolved. They say dissolved in 1874, but it really just got brought back into the British Empire. Okay. It was formed to trade in the Indian Ocean region, initially with the the East Indies and later East Asia. The company seized control of large parts of the Indian subcontinent and colonized parts of Southeast Asia and Hong Kong. At its peak, the company was the largest corporation in the world by various measures. The EIC had its own armed forces in the form of the company's three presidency armies, totaling about 260,000 soldiers, which was twice the size of the British Army at the time. Wow. Yeah. So they were formed at the same time. They have the same name. It's from royal bloodline decrees, and they have the same powers, colonizing, striking their own coin, imprisoning, and even executing people. It's crazy. My mind's spinning right now. (laughs) It reminds me a little bit of uh, my mom will listen to a song. Mm-hmm. And she can't listen to a song without going, oh, and then you could put a bass part in here and you could put this instrument and you can add this. I feel like that's what's happening to you. You're like, ooh, like this is good. But then there's this and then there's this and it goes along with it. And this is just symphony of information. Yeah, it's precisely <laughs> what's happening. That's crazy. Well, it, it gets worse. Okay. Or better, depending on how you feel about this song. <laughs> right. But the East India Company traded with India, but they also colonized those areas, ran the locals off, and used them for, guess what? Labor. Growing opium. Seems legit. (laughs) 
You're going to go into an area and run its occupants off. You might as well take over its natural resources. And what resources better to take over than narcotics? That That's the only one. Yeah. <laughs> While they're messing around with cotton in Alabama, we got opium. Mm-hmm. This yeah. will work. So before the East India Company moved in, the amount of opium that was trafficked was about 200 chests. And a chest is 140 pounds. So we're talking about a lot of opium. But 200 chests a year. Okay. East India comes in, and in in just about 40 years, they go from 200 to 1,000 chests. And before they're done, they are transferring 40,000 chests imported into China. And I'm guessing this, this transfer is happening via waterways, right? Yes, yes. Okay. So they weren't allowed to move it themselves, but they hired small country traders to move the product for them. Their armies guarded the poppy fields and, and um, protected it so nobody could take it over, ran all the indigenous peoples off and burnt their uh, crops that they had, grew the opium, and then kind of smuggled it to the small country traders, and then they made their money that way. Very similar to the way we did in Vietnam. Say, 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 Vietnam. say what? Afghanistan. Huh? Yeah. Vietnam. I mean, we talked about the Gulf of Tonkin incident on our podcast. Afghanistan. I mean, it's the same thing we're doing today. I can hear people right now talk about these are conspiracy theories. It's, it's all documented. It's a conspiracy, but we're way past theory on it. It's conspiracy fact. Yes, it's conspiracy fact. Oh, that's wild. And it's not just opium for opium's sake. The reason for the mass flooding of opium into China was to destabilize the country. This much opium being trafficked into China actually led to what's called the Opium Wars. Two major wars because uh, I think it's the uh, Qing Dynasty, Q-I-N-G, Qing Dynasty, I think is, is how it's pronounced. Okay. He was like, stop bringing all the narcotics into my country. Like he's, he's legitimately like trying to stop the mass doping of his citizens and uh, the East India company and um, British empire and France are like, eh, we're going to do it anyway. So these two opium wars, China lost. So it dethroned the, the King dynasty and led to the people's Republic of China. It led to the current, administration yep i mean with with some changes but that the mass change in the chinese government happened because we wrecked or not we the east india company wrecked the country with opium and then destroyed them in two wars fascinating sounds a lot like our war on drugs right sounds like an american blueprint like this is the playbook Mm -hmm. yeah destabilize an area, use either geopolitical means or use control of resources, Uh create a military issue or a social issue that you can exploit to gain power. It's crazy. I mean, so we have all the way back then, fast forward and even outside of opium, um, the uh, corporate attack on governments through Edward Bernays, his propaganda for Chiquita Banana Company or the Chiquita Fruit Company, destabilize the Guatemalan government, sending the country into years of civil war because he needed to sell bananas. Same thing. You occupy the land, you destabilize the government, 
It's crazy. All right. So I talked about this before on another episode, but it was a series. Things that the, the that the U.S. stole. Uh-huh. Got to go check that series out because it even talks about in South America, how the U.S. stole South America, utilizing these type of playbook tactics. Okay. Country after country after country, installing people in those countries that were sympathetic to American political interests and American business interests. There's a weapon that powerful countries use to get rid of leaders they don't like, leaders from other countries. It's called a coup. It's a French word that means a punch or a blow because it kind of means coming in and forcibly punching out a government from power. No elections, no process, just power being seized. Just someone being pushed out and someone being put in. Coups happen in so many different ways, but I want to show you how the coup has been used by the United States of America as a tool to get what they want on the world stage. So let me walk you through some of the major U.S.-led coups over the years to show you that while it sometimes seems like we live in a world full of order and rules, the reality is that the most powerful countries will often get their way by whatever means necessary. Okay, so here's how I'm defining the U.S.-led coups that I'm going to put on our list here. Number one, they were successful. There's a lot of failed coup attempts. We're leaving those out. Number two, there must be at least one U.S. government official involved in the coup. And number three, we need concrete evidence that the U.S. was actually involved, not just speculation. While the U.S. has been involved in tons of regime change efforts around the world, we landed on a much shorter list. These are the coups that I think best exemplify how this tool has been used used for international power over the years. Let's start here. In the independent country of Hawaii, it's 1893 and the U.S. is feeling like the Hawaiian queen is a threat to American control over sugar. It's sugar that's being grown by the descendants of white American missionaries who had settled in Hawaii over the years. So the U.S. sends a military ship with hundreds of troops to show up to Honolulu, and they overthrow the queen, installing one of those descendants of the Christian missionaries, Sanford B. Dole, as the new president. Notice his last name? Yeah, this coup was one of the U.S.'s first, and it set the stage not only for the new Hawaiian president's family to grow their powerful international corporation, which was based in Hawaii, but also for Hawaii to be annexed, to become a part of the United States. I made a whole video on this coup because it's pretty wild and there's so much going on here, and it was really a turning point in showing how the U.S. could remove leaders from power in faraway places, something that they start to do a lot more of. The next coup has to do with Spain. Well, actually more like Spain's colonies. Spain's glory days have come and gone. They are a declining empire and there is major resistance in their colonies, especially in Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. Meanwhile, the US is a rising empire and they already are pretty uncomfortable with Spain having colonies like 100 miles off their coast. But at the same time, they don't love the idea of true independence for places like Cuba or Puerto Rico. These are strategic islands right in the U.S.'s neighborhood. And like Hawaii, American companies have money invested, particularly in Cuba. Independence might mean them getting kicked out. So the U.S. delves into this fight between Spain and their colonies. They use the explosion of an American Navy ship as their excuse, even though it was likely an accident, not an attack. But sometimes stories matter more than truth. So the U.S. sends in troops to liberate the rebels fighting against their Spanish colonizers, promising them independence, not only in Cuba and Puerto Rico, but later over here in the Philippines and Guam. 
these local uprisings eventually drive out the Spanish. And in all of these cases, the U.S. reneges on their promise to give independence to these locals. And they figure out ways to govern Cuba and Puerto Rico indirectly themselves. The U.S. has just piggybacked off several independence movements to enact several coups at once, allowing them to install pro-American leaders and a navy base in Cuba, and eventually annexing Puerto Rico and Guam, which they still control, and the Philippines, which they held for 48 years. Again, I made a whole video about this one too if you want to go deeper. Anyway, we gotta move a little quicker here because we're not gonna get through all these coups. Let's move on. Okay, so we're over here in Nicaragua. It's 1909. There's a bunch of powerful American companies here, but a new president comes to power vowing to regulate them. The U.S. is not going to let this happen. So the Secretary of State starts spreading rumors to smear this guy, this president, saying that he's building a canal that would compete with the Panama Canal. But really, they're just upset because Nicaragua is taking loans from Europe. The U.S. keeps painting this guy as a war criminal and someone worthy of being thrown out. So push comes to shove, and the U.S. sends ships to both of Nicaragua's coasts. They assemble a bunch of marines in Panama, basically just flexing on Nicaragua and telling the president to step down. And the benefit of being a rising superpower is that it worked. He has no choice but to step down. And soon, a leader that the U.S. likes comes to power. The coup is complete, and really, this is the first of many instances of the U.S. meddling in Nicaragua. A few years later, the U.S. is back in the region for another coup in next-door Honduras. This one was plotted by a band of private American citizens, and it follows a similar pattern. A new president comes to town, in this case directly inspired by Nicaragua's president, and he wants to take back control of the country from American businesses. In this case, we're talking about bananas. The banana companies were not going to let this happen. And it was mostly this guy, a banana businessman named Sam the Banana Man. He's not going to let this pesky president run his country, no. So he assembles his own militia, he literally buys a surplus navy ship, loads it up with weapons, and starts his campaign to get this president out. He sails from New Orleans to the coast of Honduras, and he literally invades the country with, like, a private army. Wait, what, where's the U.S. government in all this? They also didn't like the political direction of Honduras either, so they just sort of stood back. Let this private invasion happen, and then at the critical moment, the U.S. steps in to order a ceasefire, basically bullying the president to step down. He had no way forward, no defense, so he resigns. And the banana man's leader of choice takes the presidency, giving the banana businessman land and a unique status to import anything he needs tax-free. And, wait for it, he refunds him for all of the coup expenses using public Honduran money. This banana man literally overthrew the government and made Honduras pay for it. Wow. Okay, so let's move forward to the 50s, where the coup becomes a more useful tool in the American toolkit. There's this new U.S. agency dedicated to collecting and analyzing information from all over the world, meaning for spying. They call it the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, and it completely revolutionizes the art of the coup. Oh, and at this point, the U.S. is now a full-blown global superpower, no longer just looking in their own neighborhood, but rather at the whole world map, investing huge resources into fighting their global rival and its communist ideology. That's nuts. It's, it's scary. But it wasn't just taking over, because that kind of sounds like, all right, you know, you should get a slap on the wrist, but hey, if you've got the resources to take over and you take over, that's just business, right? Survival hey, of the fittest. Evo it's evolution. Exactly, yep, yep, exactly. Yep, Survival of the fittest out there. Doggy dog world, so I guess big dog win. Or like, mm -hmm. or, or like, not my local weed guy, 
but the weed guy <laughs> somewhere else. You know, they say so saying you have a local weed guy. It's not exactly That's what I what meant. It it's like it's me. not exactly what I meant, Christopher. You're taking the wrong thing away from it. <laughs> I might know a guy, but I just it's in the witnessing. You know, when you go out and you witness, you meet people. Right, you, right. <laughs> You establish relationships. Exactly. You end up meeting the weed guy. Doesn't mean you use what he sells. Just, that's not a guy. You, you shouldn't have that. Here, let me take it off your hands. <laughs> but anyway, they have the same big bank, take little bank. Okay. Right. So it, w- within that, okay, it just kind of sounds like that's the way of the world. But not only mm-hmm. are you doing that type of business, you're displacing people, you're changing cultures, you're affecting lives, like livelihoods are lost. People are pushed into poverty. Mm-hmm. Crime increases. That that produces all sorts of trauma. And one of the things I'm learning is that the 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 kingdom of Satan works off of trauma based control. And that trauma yes. happens in so many different ways. Like when you can't get a job because your government's corrupt and you need to feed your family, that produces a level of emotional trauma that you're unable to do. Right. And then there's the solution. Mm-hmm. There's the offer. Well, hey, if you need money and jobs is a little tight, you could you could run this. Yeah, yo. <laughs> that, that's a term you picked up from the other event. <laughs> Seems like I'm surrounded by a lot of narcotics people. I'm really not. <laughs> I thought I'd been to your house, but I'm not. <laughs> you never went to surrounding about. neighborhood. <laughs> but you, you know that what I mean. Funny. You go ahead and you, mm-hmm. you you sling some of these drugs, or you, or you get involved in this business. Now, all of a sudden, you've opened yourself up to the spiritual resources and powers that are behind that industry. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, they've ceded control, not just of a country. And not just of, of a people, but you're seeding control of people's lives, families, all of that type of stuff. And it can happen yeah. in, in quick order, all because of this type of activity we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, that's wild. Yeah, it's crazy. And the the other thing, so I wanted to bring up the East India companies, you know, to highlight the roots of publicly traded companies and kind of the, the corruption and, and outpouring of that. But the other thing I wanted to bring up the other reason that I wanted to bring up both the VOC and the EIC is because it said that these were um, competing companies. Okay. And for me, it's just, it's beyond coincidence that they're both given royal charter within just a couple years of each, of each other to do the exact same thing. It, it, it seems to me like manufactured conflict. Now explain that because I don't think most people is hip to that. Okay, so looking through the the view of the satanic control matrix, and we talked about whether it be the Rothschilds or the spirit behind it, when you when you create both sides of the narrative, you know, we, we talk about that today. You it allows you to completely manipulate the market if it looks like there's competition when really both are owned or set up and driven by the same entity. So we see that we see that uh in 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 the in the political sphere, because the Rothschilds I was just funded, about to say that <laughs> the Rothschilds funded Marx and Engels to write the Communist Manifesto. The Rothschilds were capitalists. Capitalists funded the formation of communism. Somebody's head across the pot verse just exploded. <laughs> I heard it's it. nuts. It's nuts. 
I mean, to come so, yeah. to that process of realizing that what you're told are two competing ideas really are not. I mean, you mm-hmm. went politics that way. I went politics like American politics, Democrats versus Republicans. Okay. Yeah. You know, but this whole idea that we can see across several different countries of their political houses being divided into a left and a right, creating polarization of, of, of their, their their population. You either got to be on this this one or that that team. And thinking mm-hmm. that these teams are independent and not realizing that they are probably two wings of the same bird, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Is a crazy notion to wrap your mind around. It's it's difficult. But it allows them to to control, I mean, the the whole process. It's not evolution. It's not random chance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Hegelian dialectic, right? They manufacture the problem. They cause a reaction in the people. And then they offer the desired solution, just like you're saying. And when you control both sides, that's what makes it easy. But speaking of problem, reaction, solution, have you heard of the Buttonwood Agreement? No. Oh, it's crazy. And when I first found out about the Buttonwood Agreement, I didn't realize that it it came off of the heels of panic in the banking industry. What do you mean? So, so, well, the Buttonwood Agreement came about in response to the financial panic of 1792. I didn't even know there was a panic in 1792. I was just a youngster. I don't remember. You were a youngster in 1792? (laughs) I don't believe you were thought of. (laughs) Hey, God was thinking of me, so you just hold your horses. 1792, yeah, but as they would say in my community, you weren't even itching your daddy's pants at that point. (laughs) No, you're right, you're right. But yeah, I had never even heard of it. So what is it? What happened? It was an intense two-month period precipitated by liberal loan policy on the part of the Bank of the United States. Oh, central banking again. And so it was a combination of the central banks or the central bank and attempts of unscrupulous spenders to try to corner the debt securities market. When they failed defaulting on their loans, it caused a run on the banks, which shouldn't be possible with the central bank and panicked selling of securities. Hmm. Okay. So by extending credit and cash to local banks, the Secretary of Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, managed to maintain the crisis. Wasn't he the same president that didn't want central banks? Was that Alexander Hamilton? I think so. I think Hamilton's the one that got into the duel right over central banks with the founder of of, uh, Chase. Okay. And his whole platform was kicking out central banks, banks, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so so he tried to contain... It is. It's nuts. He tried to contain the crisis, but at this point, the young, the U.S. being so young, the financial system had been so badly rattled that many investment companies felt that there was a need to establish trust in the marketplace and safeguard investors' interest. So here we have the establishment of a central bank. We have intentional and inscrup- scrupulous actions that caused a financial panic. And all of a sudden, investment companies go, oh, we have to reestablish trust in the marketplace. We need to change some things, safeguard our investors' interest. So to that end, two dozen merchants and brokers, the creme de la creme of New York, 
They gathered together on May 17, 1792, at what is now 68 Wall Street, under the shade of a buttonwood tree, or a sycamore tree, to sign a written agreement that they had been discussing since March. Basically, they formed a club agreeing to trade directly and exclusively with each other under some common rules and boundaries. So why, you might ask, would we care about 24 people signing papers under the shade of a tree? Yeah, I'm asking that question. (laughs) This led to the New York Stock Exchange and essentially the entire economy that we have here in America. Seriously. They actually celebrate May 17th as the founding of the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, that's wild. And what's, what's crazier to me is we, you know, we did an episode, I think it was our episode 43, Cosmic Governments. Mm-hmm. And in that we highlight the reality that trees are used as idioms and can actually be forms of representations of different types of government, right? Right. So then you have the New York Stock Exchange considers that its founding happened at a buttonwood agreement under a tree, a tree agreement, suggesting to me that maybe they were implementing a new form of um, a hybrid celestial terrestrial government. And that is what birthed the New York Stock Exchange. Okay, that's crazy. Number one, it's in New York. And New York, by its name, is the the newer version of York mm-hmm. and York was a financial capital back in, in, in England. So okay. it's no wonder that New York becomes the new financial capital. Yeah, that's interesting. And then within that financial capital, a, a stock exchange market is established underneath a, a, a sycamore tree or at least mm-hmm. a tree of any sort. I, I don't know what the significance is necessarily just sycamore, but just the fact that it's a tree Mm-hmm. With the with the idiomatic significance that trees represent is it's just crazy. And this yeah. particular form of financial I don't want to say racketeering, but this particular form of financial marketing leads to an incredible amount of corruption and perversion within the financial markets. Right. Because like we were saying, the board of directors of a corporation governs the corporation to benefit the shareholders. We're not out here in a free market competing with other businesses to turn a profit because of the New York Stock Exchange, the publicly traded companies, I guess in unison with the New York Stock Exchange, the publicly traded companies are now governing for the benefit of people that own their shares. It means majority shares, majority influence. So if companies are actually being run on the behest of the shareholders, I think we should ask, what in the world did the shareholders want? Well, that would be a pretty good and question. To know what they want, you got to know who they are. And the three companies that own majority shares in almost every single publicly traded company are BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Wait. We, we got to pause. <laughs> Brain's been spinning too long, man. All right. All right. So we got to take a step back here, man, before we start getting into BlackRock, Vanguard and State Street, which is which mm-hmm. is huge in and of itself. Um, I think we got to talk about this idea of of realms. And I know it's going to seem disconnected at first, but the okay. reason that that investment firms have so much power is really built on this idea of realms. 
So okay. if, if we're talking about, you know, you, you hear the, the notion of realm, I think most people can kind of get the idea. It's a, it's a coordinated area, right? But if we look at creation as a whole, we could very easily view creation as a conglomerate of interfacing realms. For okay. instruments, for, I mean, for instance, you have governments, kingdoms, territories, right? These all interface mm-hmm. with each other. And we can see that on a natural plane, but this extends out into the spiritual world. For instance, God's kingdom is a realm. Earth is another realm. You know, within Earth, you have the realm of the United States. You have the realm of your actual state that you live in. You have the realm of the county that resides within that state. And then the city that's within that county. And then the community that's within the city, your house that is within that community, and then your body, which time to time is in your house. (laughs) Right. But then your Mm -hmm. body itself is a realm. It's contained of your spirit, your soul, and then the the actual uh, systems of your natural body. So like your 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 body is made up of, of a subsystem of realms. It's a realm that has subsystems in it, like your adrenal, lymphatic, reproductive system, respiratory, your nervous system. Your soul is a subset realm that contains your mind, will, and emotions. And your spirit's a, a subset realm as well. Like this whole idea of realm existence, when you start when you start drawing it out, we can see, oh yeah, we really are these things of realms within realms. The interesting thing is that spirits can also be realms, right? Like you have death and hell, but they actually are both a realm, like a place, as well as an actual entity. Like you see in Revelation 20, that death and hell gave up what was in them and to see that what was in it. Right. But then you also see that that death will be the last enemy destroyed, thrown to lake of fire. And you see that hell is one of the four horsemen. Interesting. Right? So they have this parallel or uh, dualistic reality to their existence. Okay. But now it brings up this question. how If all these realms exist, how do they interface? It seems as though they interface through light, which leads to a measure of quantum entanglement. And you can see this not just necessarily in the spiritual world. You can see this in the natural world. Think about those things I listed earlier, you know, the, the U.S. government, your state, your county, city, community, house, all of that. How what's one way that they are connected? One of the ways they are connected is through the Internet. OK, the Internet runs on fiber optics. Fiber optics okay. run on light. Interesting. These realms, even in the physical, are still connected by light. Right. Which is wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. Even our financial systems are connected that way. Okay. Okay. All the financial systems, they do their their stuff throughout the night, which is interesting in and of itself. (laughs) All of the settlements and things that happen, they happen overnight, but they go through fiber optic connections that that, uh, I think go through um, a specific place in Europe and and Gibraltar, the Rock of Gibraltar, all that settling is done. But yeah. it still runs through these cables, mm-hmm. transatlantic cables, transpacific cables. It's going through that. It, it's it's crazy to see how it's connected. It makes these realms almost one giant realm. 
this idea of interconnected realms even carries over into the heavens. You know, in the third heaven, you have the throne of God, which basically is, you know, the divine city. It's, it's God's HQ. And then the second okay. heaven, you have the spirit world at large. So you've got the ancestral plane that sits over the earth. You've got outer space. You've got the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh dimensions, which are populated by the elect angels, fallen angels, and even hybrid beings. Hybrid beings is an interesting one. We, we won't talk about that, but Laura Sanger got into a bit of that. Yeah, <laughs> okay. That's pretty okay. cool. And then you have the first heaven, which is basically our sky. Now, within the second heaven, there are all sorts of realms that are built to enforce demonic manipulation over the planet. And within that, there's a specific realm called the Rothschild banking system. Dan Duvall gets into a lot of this on uh, a particular podcast he was doing. Uh, and I think he has a whole series of, of teachings that explain realm reality and realm thinking. But he highlighted okay. the fact that the Rothschild banking system is one of the specific realms that exist within the second heaven. And it sits on top of the earth and it's woven itself into the structure of the earth. And it's almost like a dark shadow covering the planet, which is interesting given Isaiah 25, seven, which says that on this mountain, he will destroy the covering that is cast over all peoples and the veil of death that is woven and spread over all nations. And you think that that is the Rothschild banking dynasty? Dan Duvall makes that point. And I think he's right. Wow. I think this dynasty is not just a physical bloodline dynasty. I mean, after all, we have to recognize the Rothschilds are one of 13 Illuminati bloodlines. And what that means is that they are part of a bloodline family that has come into league with the forces of darkness, with the death cult that runs this planet. Right. And they have created over centuries of devotion, specific lines of iniquity that can be exploited by spiritual beings to create evil and chaos within the planet. They've done this perpetually over and over and over and over to the degree that they've amassed a certain amount of spiritual power as well as financial power. Right. Okay. These systems then work together to enslave people. Now, you know, people are restricted from pursuing their actual destinies because of these systems, especially in the Christian sphere. You know, due to manufactured poverty, which we were talking about a moment ago, mm -hmm. as well as an intentional lack of financial literacy. Which is something that's strategically absent from the modern academic curriculum. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, there's a reason why you're not taught how to be financially literate. Mm -hmm. And really, it gets down to those people who are financially illiterate and don't have resources available to, uh, available to them to exercise their destiny. They become the losers of a system that's engineered to be, quote unquote, broken by holding the resource of a nation hostage and the destinies of those citizens in captivity which produces the desired effect of a debt slave. And this Jeez. system runs on one financial, it runs on several, but one very important principle. And I think Gordon Gecko put it so uh, articulately well in his landmark address to a meeting of shareholders when he said this. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed for lack of a better word, is good. 
Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. Yo, that statement is crazy. That's insane. There's so much wrapped up in that statement. Uh, you know, you, you got the fact that he recognizes the power that greed holds on the financial financial markets. Mm-hmm. Then he mentions evolution, which is one of the principal mechanisms of thought and behavioral control that's implemented throughout the planet, but especially in the mm-hmm. financial sphere. Yeah. Right. And then he talks about which we've got to touch on this. He mentioned this little phrase, Corporation United States. Yes. Yeah, we, we yes. got to touch on that. But what really threw me was the song that was playing at the end of that. Fly me to the moon. Yeah, that old Frank Sinatra classic. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. So why does that stick out as being interesting to you? So here the guy is talking about greed, right? Mm-hmm. And scriptures makes this this curious little statement. You cannot worship God and, and mammon. Now, other okay. verses translate that as money, mm-hmm. but mammon was a specific God, an actual entity that was at war against the most high. And part of the way the worshipers worshiped him was through the was through greed. Right. But he was really considered the embodiment of it. Fascinating to me that they pick a song that after they've just talked about greed is good. That talks mm-hmm. about fly me to the moon. Or in essence, take me into the celestial world. I just told you that there are in the second heaven, there are these actual entities that are right above yeah. the first. So, you know, the second heaven is outer space and all of that. Mm-hmm. So take me into another way of rephrasing that would be take me into the second heaven. Interesting. So you want to go into the place where these entities are. And even heard him talking about you're what I worship and adore. Now, of course, maybe he's talking about a woman, but I don't personally think so. <laughs> Even if it okay. was within the context that this song was applied, there is worship happening of greed, which means those people are worshiping the God Mammon. If this is indicative of our actual financial system, and that clip was taken from the movie Wall Street done by Oliver Stone, talking okay. about the actual Wall Street that we were just mentioning a moment ago, like how it runs in the 80s and 90s. If this system of financial governance is really ran the way that that Oliver Stone suggests, which is by greed and corruption, it would make sense if we understand the fact that it is it is part of a realm governed by the Rothschild banking system. 
that is in direct tie to Luciferian governance. And I think it's important to recognize that Lucifer himself was involved in commerce, finance, and trade. Mm-hmm. You see this listed in scripture. It talks about Lucifer being corrupted by, by his commerce, by, by the amount of, by his trade. It would make you wonder who is he trading with? Yeah. Number one. So there had to be other entities that, that were available to trade. When yeah, that's you were, a whole crazy concept to realize who he was trading with, what they might have been trading. Like it's 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 crazy. Exactly. And when you say the what, I, I think that's just as fascinating as the who. Because I think there's a huge um case to be made that Lucifer seems to hold original trade agreements with people that seem to okay. give him quite a bit of power. Now, what those trade agreements are, I don't know. I, I've, got, I've got an idea. All right. I'm going to get back to this too, though. But So we're just going to take a slight detour and we'll, we'll get back here. But go ahead. Babylonian Money Magic. Okay, well, I was just going to say Babylonian Money Magic and the one of the highest forms of worship, like you were saying, if you're going to worship the embodiment of greed, then you practice greedily, right? Right. God is love for Christians to put their worship into practice. We love people the right way. Like that's part of it. And it's one of the highest forms of worship. So it would make sense that these entities that or corporations would behave and function the same way as the people they serve, right? Exactly. And, you know, we, we were talking about BlackRock State Street and Vanguard and how they're investment companies. So I, I, I wonder, I'm not 100% sure, investment companies work by taking people's money and reinvesting it in other places. But because they were the ones in possession of the money, it gives them the authority over those things in the places that it's invested. What if Lucifer's commerce, if Lucifer ran an investment management company of the celestial realm? That's a, a phenomenal idea. Now, that's I, I want right? to build on that. Yeah, because I think that's very close to where I want to get back to, which is okay, I perfect. think... I think part of what he is trading are stocks, but not stocks in the natural sense. We talked a moment ago about trauma, right? And that his whole system works off of producing trauma. Uh-huh. And one of the things Dan Duvall has been really skilled at pointing out is how that trauma, when, when processed through our, our, um, when processed through our, our mind, normally results in some form of disassociation occurring, right? We get fractured Mm -hmm. and pieces of us, we're no longer an integrated whole. We're now fractured into pieces and those pieces can be traded. Those pieces can be packaged together. Those pieces become like uh, one, one report talked about how they become armor for fallen angel in their clothing. Right. But we call Mm -hmm. them pieces. Give them another word. Call them stocks. Interesting. Indivisible portions of a corporation or a body. The body of your soul broken into pieces. Bro. Uh Uh-oh. Did it explode? My brain just exploded. Yeah. (laughs) For the average listener, it might sound just absolutely completely crazy. That Lucifer was buying and selling souls, right? Right. 
or soul fragments. But why do we have so steeped in our folklore the fact that you make deals with the devil to sell your soul? Exactly. Like there is a foundation for this whole concept and it's embedded in the, the, the folklore and the, uh, the mythos of our entire nation. It goes back to Nimrod. Nimrod was considered a great hunter before the Lord. That's the, that's the nice polished version of that language, <laughs> right? The more, the more articulate or I won't say articulate, but the, the more direct form of that language would be Nimrod was considered a hunter of souls. Okay. He hunted so, and souls. If, and if Satan cannot, can by contract swindle you out of your soul as a whole, then he'll shatter it into pieces and take shares of it. And barter it off for favors and other yeah. things. Uh-huh. But as another, remember the other thing we talked about with corporations and when it comes to stocks, that the corporations, when they break themselves down into stocks, the people who hold those stocks, now hold ownership or partial ownership in the corporation. Interesting. If he's selling fragments of the souls, the entities in which who buy those souls now own a measure of the person to which the soul was originally belonging towards. Getting celestial or demonic influence on the person. Yes, but it also includes the resources that person was allotted. So if God gave that person resources to fulfill their destiny, for which is the reason he put them in the planet in the first place, this mm-hmm. is a way of hijacking heavenly resources to make them part of a, of a demonic kingdom or a satanic kingdom. Interesting. Now, tell me that ain't wild. That's, that's nuts, bro. So now we combine all of that with this whole Rothschild idea of, of a a system of governance over the planet that's utilizing finance. That's a corrupt form of, I don't want to say corrupt form that is using finance that's based off of Babylonian money magic that actually focuses on hunting souls. It's taking resources from the heavenly realm, manipulating resources in the earthly realm in order to bring heaven and earth together under its provision and its directive to achieve satanic end goals. And it uses debt slavery as the main mechanism. Think about it. We're all in, we're all enslaved in one form or another via debt. And the Bible even mm-hmm. warns us that the lender has more power than the borrower. Right. It, that the borrower is a slave. Exactly. To the now that has its own, own, unsettling implications in a natural sense, right? None of us want to mm-hmm. be debt slaves to another person, but very right. few people I think consider what it is to be a debt slave to a spiritual entity that is above a human interest. Okay. That's totally different. I hadn't thought about that before. That's what I'm saying. Me neither until we had to do some of this research. Huh? Think about how hard it is to live in this world now without being in debt. Yeah, it's next to impossible. It is. And it's not just, okay, I owe somebody something or I owe this. What we don't think about is as we are in debt, borrowing from a system that is strategically designed to keep us in debt, that system gets ownership over us. If that system is owned by spiritual entities that want to completely enslave and destroy humanity, then what we are doing 
is we are buying into that system that is going to bring about our eventual destruction. Yeah. Like whole families that are, are I don't want to just say destroyed because that might oversell it. But think about in your daily life, how many of your choices are governed based on what you owe. Wow. That's a yeah, real that's scary unsettling. thought if you if you just uh-huh. paint it out. Like, I can't do what I want to do because I got to work because I got to pay back this crap that I borrowed. Mm-hmm. Now, that has implications on a family life. I can't spend as much time at home. I can't be involved in my children's life as much as I want to. Yeah. My wife may not be as, as fulfilled and covered as she should be. My kids may not have the influence of a father the way that they should be because I'm stuck working. Now, add insult to injury. What if I am working diligently trying to get out of debt and I cannot pay the debt back at the proper rate that I thought I could because inflation kicks in and robs me of value (laughs) so that my per hour value that I was guaranteed does not does not get me the same value it used to. Yeah. Meaning I got to work longer. I got to work harder. I got to be at the home more. Or maybe the wife has to step in and she's got to go get a job. Now we got two peoples in a home that are working. The home is no longer structured the way that God intended. The kids have got to go off to either babysitting or they got to go to school. So we can't do homeschooling. I got to put them mm-hmm. back then into the system. Right. And this is going to be the the, the satanic control matrix. I got to put them back into a demonically influenced educational system, which is going to train them to make sure you just get a good job. And in order to get a good job, you need to go through our system of training. And that's going to put you into what? Debt. Debt. Before you start out, you'll be in debt. And now you'll have to do the same thing that your parents had to do. But we'll up the ante again because inflation will kick in more. And so your time will be worth less. It will take you longer to redeem your time than it would your parents. It is a vicious system. I know people are like going, okay, you can't tell me every company is involved in this and every company is just satanic thing. No, we don't want to paint that picture. You know, we're not saying every business is is a Luciferian business or a satanic oriented business. No, I mean, Operation Red Pills will be a business. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not saying that, but we are saying this. Uh, we're saying a couple of things. Number one, businesses are by necessity forced many times into coming into agreement with a satanic oriented financial system. Mm-hmm. Number one. And number two. There are businesses that are directly tied into the system and have allegiance to the God of this system. And you can see this quite plainly with your eyes. You know, the interesting thing about being a business is you're allowed to be an entity, right? Mm -hmm. And being an entity means you get certain abilities. Now, you get certain legal coverage in places like the United States and, and other developed nations. But as soon as you become an entity... There's some measure of personhood that's granted to you. Persons can be oppressed demonically. They can Mm -hmm. be possessed demonically. That same thing extends to a business. A business can have a spirit in it. 
Now, whether that okay. spirit is of is, is of the most high is one thing. Whether that spirit is of the kingdom of the dragon is totally different. That's a whole nother thing. But businesses will often communicate their spiritual allegiance through their logos. Yes, that happens a lot. And we don't realize it because they're using the taciturn language of symbolism. And like mm-hmm. we say on here, symbols are to the eyes what words are to the ears. Right, right. But words to the ears only only benefit you if you can hear. If you're deaf, the words don't work. If you're blind to symbols, then they don't really affect you. And most people are are intentionally blinded to what symbols mean. So that the value that the symbol communicates is not communicated to the uninitiated. This is an occult tactic. So you can see business alignment, business spiritual alignment based on logos. I'll give you an example. Take CBS. Okay. CBS has the all-seeing eye as its logo. Take AOL. AOL also has the all-seeing eye. Yeah. Take Fidelity Mutual. They have the sun rising above the pyramid. Okay. Take Goodyear. You know the weird little thing that Goodyear has between the good and the year? I never, as a kid, I just thought it was a thing. I I didn't recognize it for what it was, but it's actually a a shoe. Like it's a foot and a shoe with wings on it, which relates back to, to Hermes. Interesting. Which means it's a hermetic symbol. And he was, he was a god of thievery, wasn't he? <laughs> he was a god of a few things, and I, I don't have them all in mind right now. I think thievery was one of them. I don't know what he has to do with me having traction on the highway. Right. I don't feel too good <laughs> about that. Ooh, here's a big one, though. Take Starbucks. Yeah, that one's a bad one. It is, but it's right in your face. This split-tail mermaid god. Mm-hmm. That's a marine spirit. Ooh, see, this is why I didn't want to go down. This is where my head was was really spinning. And I was like, I don't have a good enough handle on this. But I've been doing a little bit of studying on marine spirits. And what I've been finding out has been incredibly alarming. Now, I understand, yeah, there's a marine kingdom that exists and that there are entities in it. But what's been alarming to me is to find out the influence that it has on land-based entities. Okay. Like the idea that this is going to sound fringe to people. It's going to sound far out. Um, but the idea that it influences our technology, it influences our, our cinema, our films, these, the propaganda that we get, that all of this stuff comes from marine kingdoms and that marine kingdoms have access to land kingdoms primarily through waterways. This is one of the reasons I was asking you, how was the opium being, being uh, uh, transported? Mm-hmm. And it was going to be on waterways. Right, right. Which would mean, again, we're going into a marine kingdom in order to transfer narcotics that are going to give psychological, we're going to create psychological um, breaks in a person's mind and put them under spirits of addiction. Crazy. All coming from marine-based technology. It makes me wonder why maritime law is so important and how maritime law supersedes land-based law. Consequently, there are two kinds of law, the law of the land and the law of water. You've heard the term law of the land. 
But in point of fact, that's precisely what this word means, law of the land, because it is the people who live on land. And that is opposed to something else called the law of the high seas or the law of water. You need to understand the difference. The law of the land is the law of the culture that lives on the land. And so consequently, the law of the land is different in every country. You can do things in America you can't do in Russia. You can do things in Africa you can't do in England. So the law of the land is the law of the culture that lives on that particular land. However, there is a higher law that dominates the entire world. It's called the law of the water or the law of the high seas. The law of water is referred to as the law of money. It doesn't matter what color you are, where you're from, or where you live. Money is money. And any time you're doing banking or using money, you are now under the law of water, maritime admiralty. If you go back in history, in ancient history, where all of this began, back in the land of Cana, and I've heard, you probably have heard in the Bible, the land of Cana. The Canaanites were Phoenician, Phoenician bloodline. And in the ancient Phoenician language, Cana meant merchant banker. The very word merchant comes from mer, M-E-R, for the sea, for water. As a mermaid, we have merchant. Merchant bankers. Let me give an example of the difference between the law of water and the law of the land. The law of water, as I said, is a law of banking, money, as opposed to the law of the custom of the people or the law of the land. But backtracking just a little bit, when entities can be under financial influence, like we were talking about, and how they indicate that influence through, they, they indicate it through press release, they indicate it through products that they make, they indicate it through positions that they support, right, and movements that they support. Mm -hmm. which is getting more into this wokeism idea because you see that based on statements that have been made by companies. You see that based on products that they make, whether that's films, whether that's uh, physical products that have iconography on there, that's important. And then you see this by movements that they support. Like every company in the world jumped on black lives matter. Mm -hmm. Almost every company I'm being a little facetious. I don't know as everyone in the world, but it seemed like every company in the world was jumping on that. And yeah, they wanted yeah. to backtrack a little bit when we start to find out really where it originated from. Mm -hmm. And we, where the money was really going and all of that. Exactly. Then we didn't hear so much about it, but too bad the damage had been done socially. The damage mm -hmm. had been done psychologically to the, to the mind of the people because companies were pushing this. Right? When you find out that a company can be, a, a spirit can be in, in, is it invoked? I think that's the right word. Invoked into a company and into the products that company makes, mm -hmm. then it makes investment companies all the more curious because investment companies have the unique ability to tie mass groups of people into these companies via investments. Yeah. Really, that's really crazy. scary. Right. Mm -hmm. And because of that, investment companies yield a lot of power which means we have to pay really close attention to 
what investment, who, who are these major investment companies? And I believe a few minutes ago, before I went on this huge rant, you mentioned three really significant companies, BlackRock, mm-hmm. Vanguard, and State Street. Yep. Yeah. And we said that they own majority shares in every publicly traded company. Yeah. But before Mr. Skept, I can hear him charging up already. <laughs> Let's get this, this fact out in the open. They're investment management companies. And what this means is they don't actually own in a, in a way that um, normal people imagine owning something, right? Like you own your car. The way an investment company works, an investment management company, is you ha- take people like me and you or companies that don't have time to constantly watch the market and know where their money is supposed to go and all that. You'd go to Vanguard or BlackRock and you'd go, hey, I have this much money and you give it to them. And I mean, there's, there's several different levels. Like you can, you can tell them to invest your money here and there, whatever, or you can just be like, here, help develop my portfolio, establish my portfolio. And they advise where all of this money goes. But it's interesting because, excuse me, the, the law recognizes the person that purchased the shares as the one having the authority. So because you hand your money to an investment management company and they use your money to buy shares, the investment management company is the one that gets to have influence over the, the shares at which are owned. So even though they're, they tell you that you own the shares, right? It's your portfolio. It's your money. But it's actually powered through the investment companies, State Street, BlackRock, and Vanguard, and they're the ones that get to vote on your behalf. And it's crazy because we talk about how the church has not lost any ground that it didn't first give up. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that these companies wouldn't have any power if people didn't give them their money. That is. All the money, the, the trillions of dollars in assets that these companies manage was given to them by normal people. And it, it's crazy because um, Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock, he makes a point in one of his, his videos. He's like, look, if, and he makes it sound like he's all for it, right? He's like, if the individuals want the right to vote on their shares, then we just need to change a couple laws and let's make it happen. Okay. But, but he's, I mean, so that, that statement alone, because there's a bunch of people that are like, well, the investment companies don't own the shares and they don't have a seat at the table and all of that. But that's nonsense because Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, I think they manage at this point upwards of $10 trillion in assets. He admits that he is voting on account of those shares. And when he says, oh, if the individuals want it, then let's change laws. What he's telling us is that the individuals are not voting their shares. The company is doing it for them. Right. Crazy. He's also a huge supporter of stakeholder capitalism. Okay. Now, I'm not familiar with. I've heard of stakeholder capitalism, but -hmm. I'm not really familiar with the definition. And I know it's different from a shareholder. Right, it is because the uh, the WEF pushes it, and a uh, a shareholder is like we've been saying the person that actually purchases that indivisible unit of the company. A stakeholder is can be anyone that 
has influence on or can be influenced by the company. Okay. So it would be customers, suppliers, employees, the shareholders, and local community. Okay. So the whole idea is that companies in stakeholder capitalism, companies have to function on behest of society as a whole. Problem is who gets to determine what is best for society as a whole? It'd be the governing agency. Okay. So when they say stakeholder capitalism, what they're really saying is communism, which is crazy because we know the Rothschilds paid Engels and Mark to write the Communist Manifesto. Now, capitalists like Larry Fink, like those that run Vanguard, like the ones that are involved in the World Economic Forum, they're pushing for stakeholder capitalism, which is just another form of communism. And communism was designed to suppress the individual and individual rights, yes. individual freedoms, and to produce this, this common idea. And it's mm-hmm. not that I, I don't think people should take that as a, a slight against us coming together and working in unity. But it would be the idea that you don't have an individual right. You don't have individual say so. And the, I think the idea before that used to be a person should be it was the the notion of liberalism and liberalism now has a totally different meaning than it originally did from what I understand. Mm-hmm. What I understand yeah. originally it meant not infringing on the rights of a person unless it came to that person's actions infringing on the right of another. So essentially okay. you should have as much personal freedom as possible for you to live your life as freely as possible. Mm-hmm. You should be liberal in being able to do that. Okay, but there's a, I gotcha. That's very difficult to control. And if you want to build a system of control, you have to begin to reduce those liberalisms, those mm-hmm. freedoms, if you will. And yeah, so, it, it, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it's crazy. One of the things that um, Larry Fink talks about as being horrible for the economy is selling shares back to private companies, like moving the money back into private hands, he thinks is a terrible idea. Oh, I'm sure he would. <laughs> he would, right, right. Yeah, he would lose a lot of his, his power mm-hmm. if that happened. So he would probably be against the transfer of wealth back to the individual and would prefer oh, yeah. the transfer of wealth to the state or the corporation acting on behalf of the state or being its own state. Mm-hmm. But it having yeah. that, that, that type of money. This, this is, is wild when you realize the power that investment companies have. Like uh, yeah, it's crazy. If you take a couple, let's say like Apple, mm-hmm. and you pull up Apple's, you go to like Yahoo Finance, right? And you pull uh-huh. up Apple, and you go over to where it says holders, and you look under under Apple's holders who the principal top three principal holders are. You know who you find? State Street, BlackRock, and Vanguard. Exactly. Well, no, you find mm-hmm. Vanguard, BlackRock, and Berkshire Hathaway. And then you find State, State Street under Berkshire Hathaway. Okay, gotcha. So top three are Vanguard, BlackRock, and Berkshire Hathaway. Mm-hmm. But if you go, again, right back into Yahoo, and you look up Berkshire Hathaway to find out who its, uh, its main holders are, uh-huh. you find Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. <laughs> that's it, crazy it, it's wild it's like this interconnected 
network of investment holdings. Right, right. And they're not shy about the power that they have because uh, Larry Fink in an interview and in recognizing the importance of long-term investments and his influence on those companies, mm-hmm. he actually says this. You, you now make a point of, that's, that's an investment criteria for you. Well, behaviors are going to have to change, and this is one thing we're, going to, we're asking companies. Uh, you have to force behaviors, and at BlackRock, we are forcing behaviors. Uh, 54% of the incoming class are women. We, we added four more points in terms of diverse uh, employment this year. And it, if it, it, you know, what we are doing internally is if you don't achieve these levels of impact, it, your compensation could be impacted, okay? We're doing the same thing. And so it's just, it, you have to force behaviors. And if you don't force behaviors, whether it's gender or race or just any way you want to say the composition of your team, you're going to be impacted. And that's not just not recruiting. It is development, as Ken said. And ultimately, it's still going to take time, but I am just as much shocked as Ken is that we have not seen more opportunities. And we're going to have to force change. We're going to have to force change. Mm-hmm. Behaviors, recruiting, development. That's crazy. Seems like. That would that would be why we have the wokeisms that we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if this seems to be the seems to be the financial power behind producing the woke agenda. You know, if you're going to force an acceptance of let's say uh, same sex relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Then you need to have companies that can change the thinking of a population that, according to studies, ninety eight ninety nine percent don't part, don't really participate in if you're going to normalize it. And so right, being right. an investment company, you are invested in definitely, definitely the S&P 500. You know, the 500 most profitable American companies you're definitely invested in. And you're invested in more companies than just that, but just restricting it down to the S&P 500, or not the S&P, but the uh, Forbes 500. Okay. You're going to have a company on there like Disney and you're going to have significant investments in Disney. And you're going to tell during shareholder meetings, listen, we really would like to see the company move in this direction more. And then you'll start seeing products put out by Disney that mirror that. You'll start seeing like in Buzz Lightyear where they have, you know, two women living together. You'll start seeing Mm -hmm. on, on the on the Disney cartoon channels where they're introducing gay characters. You'll start seeing where they're introducing introducing language of having to choose your pronouns. All of this type of stuff will start normalizing it, but it mm-hmm. will come through funding. And the funding is controlled by these int- these investment groups. Right, right. And he said, if you don't fall in line, then you're not going to get compensation. You're not going to get any extra money. You're not going to get the capital that you need to run your business unless you fall in line with their woke agenda. Which explains a target. It explains an Anheuser-Busch. It explains mm-hmm. a Ford. And even the green agenda. Like all of that. That's all wrapped up in it. And you get a lot of these marching orders from World Economic Forum, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's wild to see the amount of control that is gendered through a financial system. And it's blowing my mind that this is not just like any regular financial system. This is a financial system that's built off of creating slaves, right? Using mm-hmm. money that isn't truly valuable. 
that isn't backed by any real value, creating so much debt that countries collapse and forming an integrated one world financial system. Now, what's crazy is when you see this play it out on a small scale, I wonder how many people think to themselves, if if a major multinational company can't resist the financial pressure brought on by do it my way or we pull our money. What mm-hmm. makes you think that you as a head of household or just a person can resist the financial pressure put on you when the pressure comes to conform or else? Yeah, that's a good point. If we're playing in this system, working day and night, trying to get a good job so we can get a couple products in our house. Send the kids off to college so they can get indoctrinated and, you know, maybe retire utilizing these same companies like Fidelity Mutual. And then hopefully we die a happy person and the next generation could do a little bit better. What makes us think that when the Bible talks about there will come a one a system so powerful that you won't be able to buy or sell? Like, no, no, I can't see that happening. That's like way off in the in the distant future. Are you sure? <laughs> Because companies that have way much more, way much more, companies that have way more money than you do as an individual, they're bowing to the pressure. Mm-hmm. What makes you, outside of having the strength, protective covering, and grace of God on your life, think that you can resist it as well? I got nothing. I don't think you can. It's crazy. You have to change the whole way that you look at the way businesses run and function. Including your own personal business. Mm-hmm. Because like just Coke and Pepsi. Like I, I did a bunch, uh, a few of these. I looked them up mm-hmm. to see who, who has the, the major holdings. Like you think that Coke and Pepsi are rival companies, right? That they're just trying to come out with the best product, the best price, whatever, to appease the, the purchasers of soda pop. So they can make money. I did until Chappelle said, you know, he doesn't believe the war is real. He's like, you can't even taste the difference between Coke or Pepsi. If you want to know which one tastes better, it's whoever paid me last. <laughs> I just got to deal by Pepsi. They taste amazing. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, it makes sense. I mean, he didn't talk about this portion. And I could tell the difference by how, how they taste. But the mm-hmm. idea of competition, I think, is an illusion. Oh, for sure. Because they're owned by the same people. Uh, for Coke, the second largest shareholder is Vanguard. Third is BlackRock. Fourth is State Street. Pepsi, one is Vanguard. Two is BlackRock. Three is State Street. That's wild. Owned by the same people. FedEx and UPS. For FedEx, number one shareholder is Vanguard. Number three is BlackRock. Number five is State Street. UPS, one is Vanguard. Two is BlackRock. Three is State Street. McDonald's and Wendy's. McDonald's. One Vanguard, two BlackRock, three State Street. Wendy's, second largest shareholder, BlackRock, third Vanguard. I'm in her, I'm, it's curious you pick Wendy's. I thought you would have picked Burger King. Burger King is privately owned. Really? Yeah, I was actually surprised when I went through these. Chevy is privately owned. Walgreens is privately owned. Taco Bell is privately owned. Burger King is privately owned. Chevy's privately owned? Yep. There's no stocks of Chevy that you can buy? No, if you go to Yahoo Finance or whatever you're checking stocks and you type in that company, Android, Chevy, Walgreens, Taco Bell, and I mean a a few others, and it pops up private. 
So there's no public shareholders. Really? I would have thought Chevy would be public. I guess not. That's crazy. Yeah, because it it threw a little bit of a wrench in my plans because I was going to do Apple and Android, you know, Ford and Chevy. And, And I was like, well, I can't do the other side of that because they're privately owned. Wow. I just looked for so, Chevrolet. Uh-huh. Wow. Well, that's news. Mm-hmm. It's that a little is, interesting. It is a private company. Yeah. Wasn't that I didn't believe you. But no, somebody once there's said, something different to see it for yourself. I get it. I get it. Yeah, somebody was like, never trust any research except your own. I was like, ooh, I like that. It should be suspect of your own, too. Well, I was going to say that. Double check your own. Right, right. But I mean, same thing. Harley and Indian. CVS and Rite Aid. Lowe's and Home Depot. All of these things that are put up and we've been told for years they're in competition with one another. They're not. They're owned by the same people. So they have to hire the same way. Their production has to happen at the behest of the same group of people. And then like you were saying before, I I mean, sorry, I I missed pharmaceutical companies. It's the same thing. Moderna, Pfizer, the same shareholders. The news media companies, you know, Sony, Viacom, Disney, Comcast, most of those are owned by the same companies. But the kicker is the three top shareholders of BlackRock, Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. Mm-hmm. Top shareholders of Vanguard, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street. Exactly. Top shareholders of State Street, Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street. They're the, they're the same group. They're like the holy or the unholy trinity of corporations. So funny. When I was looking through the notes, I was going to title that section that. Oh, were you? I was. I was debating between that and the unholy alliance. But okay. yeah, they definitely okay. represent that. Mm-hmm. And these are the people that are, are controlling our world. They're not the sole players, but they are major, major players. Yeah, they are. And 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 beyond just the the corruption of like what is it? What do they say that ultimate power corrupts ultimately? Absolute power or power corrupts absolute, absolute power. power corrupts absolutely. Yes, yes. Thank you. Which and I think I, is I think horrible, we, a horrible saying. Why? Because you love power? Oh, I got nothing to do with me. It has a negative implication on God. Okay. Because they don't That's relegate fair. it to like human affairs. They just make a blanket statement. I never even picked up on that. Yeah, it always bothered me when I heard that. Because I'm like, if God has absolute power, then by nature you have to be corrupt to God. And if you don't have absolute power then we need to define how much you have and where its limits are. Because I was told it was unlimited. <laughs> so there are two so different absolute, problems. Right. Absolute power corrupts humans, absolutely. Is that better? No. No? For humans, power corrupts. And for humans, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Okay. That works. I would keep it strictly on a human scale. I mean, you could apply it to a celestial scale. That wasn't exactly what you said, bro. 
It's close. It's slightly different, but I, I, I tried to restrict it to humans. I know, but the language is so important, especially in the spiritual realm. Spirit, the spiritual realm exploits poor, poor language. Okay. It's like what happened with Eve. You know, did God right, really say right. that you can't do this? And then she over-answered. It was close, but it wasn't exact. But it wasn't right. Yeah. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. To that point of corruption, beyond just having cor- all, all of the power for BlackRock and, and, and these investment firms, there, there does seem to be a level of corruption and, and stuff outside of their power. Because the, the Fed made a decision to purchase a slew of ETFs in the early stages of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Half of those were BlackRock ETFs. What are ETFs? An ETF is an exchange-traded fund. So um, it's an exchange-traded fund that's a type of pooled investment security. It operates much like a mutual fund. Okay. And uh, when the Fed purchased a bunch of them, half of them were BlackRock. So to be fair to BlackRock, they agreed to not charge the Fed the typical costly advisory fees. Okay. But to be fair to the taxpayer, BlackRock made out like a bandit from the deal. (laughs) And within a week after the deal was announced and months before the the Fed purchased BlackRock ETFs, one popular fund saw over $8 billion flow in from investors. So there's definitely a bunch of back dealing that happens. But it's not just uh, um, for, for profit. There's also personal interest. So BlackRock's former investment executive, Brian Deese, mm-hmm. is now pr- President Biden's head of the National Economic Council. That's not surprising. You know, we see that level. We see that type of, of conflict of interest happening between government and private industry a lot. Uh-huh. A lot. Yeah, especially with the FDA. Exactly. But even the here, pharmaceutical like, companies. since we're just talking finance, you see this happening all the time. Like you, you take like the under the 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 big 2008 issue that we had where the, mm-hmm. we had the housing market crash. I believe Timothy Geithner was the, the Fed, uh, the, the head of the the um, New York Fed which is like the most powerful out of the, the branch banks within the Federal Reserve System. And okay. then he quickly got moved into political positions, like President's Economic Council advisor. Um, I don't think he made Treasury, but I wouldn't be surprised. Hank Paulson, who was the Treasury Secretary at that time, comes right out of the, the it's either Goldman Sachs or Lehman Brothers, I believe he was part of, but comes right out of the financial oh. industry. Okay. Like we see these tradings back and forth that happen mm-hmm. all the time, which, again, just speaks of it at least gives a possibility of collusion and corruption. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that there is. But then when you start following the stuff out and you see the decisions that are made and the implications of those decisions, you're like, yeah, there's corruption there. Oh, for sure. And for it's just sure. not a smart system. I mean, I understand pulling people from areas of expertise Mm-hmm. Or areas that they work in because of the expertise they may have, so they could provide legitimate advice to others. I, I get that, but I think that there has to be a mechanism in place to limit this whole back and forth that we have between private industry and government. Right. Like you just shouldn't be allowed to serve either on your board or hold some of these investment positions if you're going into government or coming out of it for right. a period of time. Because it's a clear conflict. conflict of interest. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But uh, 
Aside from that, Larry Fink, and I had to look this up. Larry Fink several times says that he is against populism. What is that? That, Bro, I'm telling you, listening to this guy talk is so frustrating. If I had hair, I'd be pulling it out. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so he's against populism. He blames populism on inflation. Or he blames inflation on populism, sorry. So he's, he's using this thing and he's like, this is the reason that we have these issues and this is why inflation is so bad and all of that. And I was like, okay, well, what is populism? Like maybe there's this huge you know, plague on economy that I didn't know. And it, <laughs> the definition, it says, populism refers to a range of political stances that emphasizes the idea of the people and often juxtapose this group against the elite. I was like, wait, 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 wait. So... <laughs> Any so, political stance that emphasizes the idea of the people against the elite, and that's the reason that we have inflation? That's what you're – the CEO of BlackRock is is avidly against? Wait, I thought he was against the idea of populism. He ties this to inflation? Yeah. He blames – he said it's because of emerging ideas of populism is why we have the spike of inflation today. I thought it was because Biden hadn't signed the legislation that bans (laughs) inflation. I thought that was the reason. It is. um, It is amazing to me the 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 language that these people use. They use words that not very many people have heard of in terms and 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 um, explain things in such a convoluted way, and then completely avoid the actual truth behind the matter. Nobody says that inflation is from printing. Too many dollars. And that's exactly what it is. Exactly. But this whole conspiracy theory of there being a financial elite that rules society from behind (laughs) the scenes, this is what's contributing to inflation. Mm -hmm. And we just need to stop using those terms and inflation will go down. Right, right. But uh, uh, his whole stance against populism really reminded me of a a quote by um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You said it like said, I know old Dietrich. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, um, I believe he was a German minister. Okay. Just a, just outside of like um, Nazi Germany time, I believe. I don't have the, the dates exactly with me right now. Okay, what did but old yeah. Dietrich say? He said, the person who is in love with their vision of community will destroy community. But the person who loves the people around them, sorry, the people the person, oh my gosh, the person who loves the people around them will create community everywhere they go. Okay. And I thought that's so clever. And we see this. We see the, 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 the liberal movement. We see all of these agendas and how these world economic types, these Larry Fink types, these people that are pushing one world order, they have this, this, um, delusions of grandeur when it comes to their vision of what the world should be. Mm-hmm. And as they're forcing people into this mold that they're creating, they're actually destroying communities. I can see it. Yeah. It's crazy. I just started watching last night uh, a little bit of guardians of the galaxy volume three. Okay. Okay. And a major, major component of the plot is this idea of creating a utopia. Oh, really? And when you get to see the utopia, it is not utopian at all. So it's interesting. It, it almost parallels this, this very thing that Dietrich was talking about. Okay. Interesting. And absent from the person who tried to orchestrate this, this mm-hmm. this whole utopian environment, 
absent from their character is genuine love. So it's huh. fascinating. I think he's he's spot on. Okay. I'm going to have to give that movie a watch. I plan to once this is over. <laughs> okay. Kick back okay. with a nice little dinner, and I'm going to watch the rest of it. All right. Sweet. Sweet. But the... This whole approach, when when looking at it and taking uh, Bonhoeffer's quote and all of that, this approach of the elites is antithetical to the approach that Christians are called to. True. And this is the exact approach that causes wokeism to 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 exist Mm -hmm. because people in in, within a wokest environment, they love the community that they're fighting for, so to speak, or advocating for. Or the idea of the community. Exactly. Yeah, there's yeah. They're so in love with the wokeisms and and this is what compassion is and this is what love really is. So we have to force it on everyone. Exactly. And they destroy communities. I mean, you see that clearly in the cities that were supporting BLM. Uh huh. Yeah. Not just defund the police per se, which I think is a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I need police to keep people out of my stuff because I, I got stuff that I like. <laughs> <laughs> I actually talked to people about that when that whole movement was real big and they were like, well, we don't mean defund as in defund. But you said defund. Like, so what in the heck do you mean? Right. Say like, oh, what you mean, mean and mean what you say. What yeah. It's crazy. It's craziness. The type of rhetorical analytics that just don't go anywhere. <laughs> I'm like, shut up. You can't, you're not allowed to be the spokesperson. Well, well, when I said don't do, it's, can you imagine like literally being in court did they say stop? Yes, but when they said stop, they didn't literally mean stop. <laughs> really? Yes, because I'm part of that whole movement that when you say something, you don't really mean what you say, but you want me to take you serious. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. But we saw those people that were advocating for that destroy their cities. Mm-hmm. Riot, burn down, do all of that. Like, where, where's the love? There's a totally different way to bring about that type, that type of change. And all of this is being purported under the idea of a social injustice. It's not right. to say that there aren't social injustices, but the whole way that it went about was really taken from the playbook of people that was created by the very people we're talking about. Mm-hmm. These Luciferian financial elites that are looking for means to control population. Right. Absolutely crazy. It is. Financialreview.com says that in 2002, the Rothschild Australia Asset Management appointed BlackRock Incorporated to manage its global fixed interest portfolios. Oh, well, that doesn't seem problematic. (laughs) Yeah, it was interesting, like trying to find some of the, the connections and stuff. And then just like blatantly Rothschild and BlackRock are clearly doing business together here blackrock manage rothschild assets like that's crazy uh i was waiting for it seems like something should have happened a little bit earlier yeah yeah and i mean i'm sure there was some of that but they it's just blatant in our face now and seven months ago did you know that at least four states pulled a bunch of funding from blackrock no i'm curious though are they democratic or republican states um, Florida, Louisiana, Montana, and South Carolina. Florida's Republican. I, I imagine know, Louisiana sure would ones. be Democrat. Possibly. And who are the other two? I think it's Montana and South Carolina. MO's Montana, right? 
Yeah, I would say South Carolina's Democrat. Okay. I don't know about Montana. I could be off. I'm just going what I think. It kicked off with DeSantis because he disapproves of um, the the BlackRock ESG funding. And we'll get into that in a minute. But woke ESG funding, this woke ideology that these investment management companies are forcing on companies, other um, institutions, has gotten so bad that states are pulling funds. So Florida pulled $2 billion from BlackRock. Mm. Louisiana, $794 million. Montana, $500 million. South Carolina, $200 million. Like there's a bunch of people that don't agree with the big business practices and the influence that these investment companies have, so they're pulling their money. I guess the That's Dutton crazy. family ain't happy. Dutton family. Yellowstone. The show. I don't watch it. You don't watch Yellowstone? What's wrong? See, I had to repeat it, Christopher, because I was so shocked that you don't watch Yellowstone. (laughs) Now, John Dutton is fictitious, um, fictitious show, but John Dutton, who's a rancher, owns the Yellowstone Ranch, actually became governor of Montana. Okay. And he don't take no tea for the fever, no cray for the dead. He's an (laughs) EGAT type person. So he would be the type I would expect to pull the money out. Montana investing in this? Mm -mm. Gotcha. Gotcha. I can't say that I recommend you watch the show, but it ain't a bad show. Okay. Okay. One, one other weird thing, but before we move on, Vanguard has a real unique business structure. The company is actually owned by its funds. It just sounds so circular that the company is owned by the company funds. Sounds like a sketchy business model. I was going to say that. It sounds a little, a little, mm, you have to explain that some more before I can understand what that is, but that don't sound good. Right, right. I don't completely understand it, but it's not right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to withhold judgment, but I'm going to maintain suspicion. Right. No doubt. No doubt. So yeah, these companies control the purchase of shares and therefore issue capital based on SRI, Sustainable responsible investing. Okay. Now I've got an issue. This sounds like (laughs) sustainability goals. Oh yeah. Oh, it absolutely is. I think anytime I hear sustainable, I need to start questioning. I need Mm -hmm. to pump the brakes and be like, that sounds like a form of trapping. Yes, absolutely. Who determines what's responsible investing? Well, it's based off of scores. Who is setting these scores? I don't know. I'm thinking it's going to have to be a firm. There's going to have to be somebody that's responsible for this. No, it's a it's a branch of the government that forces businesses to reveal their ESG, DEI, and CEI criteria. So it's it's there's this weird. What's the name of of that? S S E C, something exchange security exchange commissions. Yes, yes, yes. So they enforce the fact that these companies have to report their their ESG, like anything that would affect their ESG score. So it's enforced by the government. And then depending on the type of score, there's different lobbying groups for uh, the different ways that, that we score things. So like the, the CEIs, Corporate um, Equality Index. Mm-hmm. It's published by Human Rights Campaign Foundation, which is the largest LGBTQ lobbying organization in the U.S. Okay. 
So it's interesting that there's like there's groups of people behind it, but there's the there's collusion is what it is. So you get Human Rights Campaign Foundation, cool. They can they could produce whatever scoring system for a company they want. Okay. But wh- why is anyone supposed to care about that? That's the question. Right. We could we could come up with business scoring things. That could be a fun side uh, segment of Operation should. Red Pill. We might yeah, be able to make a make a little bit of coin. <laughs> yeah, we can score businesses and then people can invest in businesses based off of the ORP score. Forget ESGs and DEIs and CEIs. You need ORPs. <laughs> I think I like that. But so ESGs are set up and DEIs, you have these different scoring systems that are set up and published by, by different institutions and companies are forced to reveal all of the information that affects that score. And the only thing or the thing that, that forces people to care about these things is the investment management companies going, oh, based on these scores is how we're going to tell people they need to invest their money. Mm-hmm. So it's this weird collusion, like nothing, there's, there's no law necessarily to reinforce like the adherence to ESGs and stuff, but it's all financially backed up through the investment management companies that have money in every company. Which is brilliant because you don't need to mess around and diddle with the government and voters and, you know, senators or congressmen or anything like that. So to make it a law. What you can do, though, is make it a position and give it teeth. And the teeth would be withholding of financial funds. Yep, that's exactly it. And you don't have to do it in a way that violates the law because there's no law. Right. And the only way, again, the only way these people were able to move into this position of power and monopoly is because citizens gave their money to the companies. Here, help me invest this. Take my money. Promise me more money in the future, and they are now controlling all these assets. Now, here's here's a question that I, I think is worth asking. Citizens that were doing that, were they doing that because they were trying to make sound financial decisions? You know, you're told mm-hmm. this is a good way for me to grow my money. I don't want to to waste what's been given to me and what's in my stewardship. Or were they doing it out of subtle but nonetheless real greed. I would probably say both. Okay. Interesting answer. I didn't know both was a possibility. (laughs) Well, I mean, if people like you and me would hire an investment firm or whatever, be like, look, I mean, we've admitted like, so almost everything in this episode, I had to learn like from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I want the monies. You just want the money. Yours is greed powered. I'm going to have to fight greed. Right. And I'm going to probably try to say that I'm trying to be a good steward of what I've been given. But underneath (laughs) it, it will probably be greed for me. Okay, Interesting. Now, I'm not saying that applies to everyone, but I think it's really I don't want to say difficult, but it is challenging to look yourself square in the face and ask, what is my true motivation? Mm -hmm. Why am I really trying to get more funds? Yeah. I just had this whole like satanic control matrix loop show up in my head because we talk about the um, 
education system. Okay. And you had mentioned in this very episode that they don't teach us how to manage finances. Mm -hmm. You know what that results in? Us giving money to BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard because they know how to manage finances. Exactly. Good point. Good point. If we were trained and knew how to do it, we wouldn't be giving our money to these institutions. That's crazy. Exactly. Jeez. See, I like when you follow my train of thought that I did not ask. (laughs) Love it. So ESGs, you want to get into ESGs? Let's go. ESGs are environmental and social governance. Oh, sorry. Social corporate governance. And and that's the score. So they cover environmental, which would be preservation of our natural world, climate change, carbon, carbon emission reduction, water pollution and water scarcity when Gates is buying it all up, air pollution, deforestation, Greenhouse gas emissions. That's all. Everything is in environmental there. Your company is getting scored on that. It doesn't matter how good your product is. If you're not addressing climate change, carbon emissions, water pollution, air pollution, deforestation, and greenhouse gases, then you're not scoring high on ESGs. You're not getting investment from these investment management companies. And nobody's arguing whether those are even legitimate issues to be concerned about with the environment. Exactly. Exactly. They're just control metrics. Yes, that is all it is. So the social aspect, consideration of humans and our independence. Interdependencies, sorry. Customer success, data hygiene and security, gender and diversity and inclusion, community relations and mental health. This is affecting my mental health. It is. It's crazy. And there's a lot of business people that are really frustrated by this because it's difficult enough to, to have a business plan and pay employees and put out a good product. That should be your focus. You know, not necessarily, I mean, mental health for your employees is important, but. Uh, they can manage. Like, <laughs> all this extra stuff is just taking away from the. The, the quality of product and the actual business that's being conducted. So beyond the fact that it's, it's, it's stupid and, you know, like nobody is asking whether or not climate change actually needs addressed. How do you, you know? really feel, Christopher? <laughs> well, gender and diversity and inclusion. Like, I, I don't think that these things are, are benefiting the community. But the point that I'm making, what? Uh, I just that specific one you mentioned reminded me of this this joke that I just saw. Um, and who's the dude from Waterboy? Or he's like, you, you can do it. Rob Schneider. Thank you. He was talking about how the CEO of I think it was Continental Airlines uh-huh. is is really saying with the, all the pilots that they're going to get back in, they're really going to really be pushing gender and diversity inclusion. The CEO of United Airlines. Last month, the CEO, he announced of all the hiring for all the new pilots that are coming up this year, all the hiring for the new pilots, the main focus is going to be diversity. What? (laughs) Diversity? Not the best pilots you can find? (laughs) The ones with the most hours of experience? (laughs) Things you've done before? Nope, diversity. 
I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of flying all the time with these white pilots landing safely and on time. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> no. These are skill-based positions. That's all I care about. And mm-hmm. it's just interesting how this, as you were talking about, how how it's making it harder to do business. I think uh-huh. it's doing something else behind the scenes. Okay. I think it's consolidating power by pushing people out of business who cannot meet the demands of business plus this. Because the pe- the folks who can are going to be major corporations that have the manpower to do this. Right. right? Like an Amazon can like handle the, this. Like the, the Fresno report affecting the whole medical industry. You got me on Fresno. I don't know. I'm out the loop. Not, not Fresno. So um, Rockefeller purchased the Medical American Association in 1901. Yeah, the AMA. Nine years later, Carnegie funded the Fresno report. And that pushed out all of these new stipulations and ways that um, the medical industry should practice. Okay. But they were so extravagant. Most of the people that were practicing natural medicine couldn't afford the new um, offices or the, the, the new practicing areas and whatever. So it pushed all of the natural paths and everyone doing actual beneficial medicine out of the industry and only left the giant conglomerates that were in line with Rockefeller medicine in place. That's what's happening. Yeah. That's crazy that that's what's happening now. Right. That was a keen insight, bro. Hey man, I know nothing about this Fresno Fresno report. That's dope. (laughs) So we did a environmental social and now the governance section it's logistics and defined processes for running a business or organization board of directors and its makeup executive compensation guidelines, political contributions and lobbying venture partner compensation, hiring and onboarding best practices. Wow. Every single publicly traded company is being scored on all of these things. And depending on how well they score will depend on how much money they get from investment management groups. So we said earlier, if the the, the major companies are being forced to comply with a system of control and they have financial resources at their disposal that far exceed what the average individual person does. And we see those companies being bought to heel based on a social credit system. What makes us think that when they bring a social credit system to the individual, we won't be forced to comply? Right. It's right. I mean, they're doing it right in front of our faces. Exactly. And they're doing it with big business. Mm -hmm. If we're going to stand by and let them do it with big business, we are asking, begging for them to do it to us. Different set of metrics, but the same level of control. Yeah. It's crazy. So the WEF is interesting. They have this to say about ESGs. ESG refers to environmental and social governance information about a firm. There is growing evidence that companies that take their environmental and social responsibilities seriously perform better financially. I wonder why. Because they're getting more money. It's a weird spin to put on it. But, oh, they're doing better financially because all of these investment firms are giving them money for scoring high. But they say, this has naturally made investors sit up and take notice. 
ESG investing or sustainable responsible investing, SRI, uses this information about a company to inform investment decisions and prioritize stakeholders. The forum's partners are leading the switch to stakeholder capitalism. There you the go. whole implementation of all of these scoring systems is to move us to stakeholder capitalism, a.k.a. communism. And nobody sees it coming. Nobody. It's crazy. And like we were saying, we already have the Security and Exchange Commission reinforcing all of these, forcing businesses to publicly reveal all of, the, um, all of their attributes or characteristics that actually show up and would change their ESG scores. That's wild. Yeah, we should be concerned about it. Yeah. So moving on to CEIs, the Corporate Equality Index. Like I was saying before, it's published by the Human Rights Campaign Foundation, the largest LGBTQ lobbying organization. And it's used to rate American businesses on their treatment of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender employees, consumers, and investors. There you go, right there. That normalizes the polymorphic sexual perversity. This mm-hmm. gets it going, puts the funding behind it, and you will either comply or you'll be out of work. Yeah. The, the CEI rates employers on a scale of 0 to 100% based on several key criteria that define corporate and social responsibility in this area. Here's the scary thing for me. In the 2022 CEI, 842 employers re- received a top score of 100 and earned the coveted title of best place to work for LGBTQ equality. The CEI is a national benchmarking tool on corporate policies, practices, and benefits pertinent to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer employees. And there's 842 of the major corporations that scored 100 on this, which means they're buying into it, that their tactics are actually working in getting all of these companies to to heal. Exactly. And then what's crazier is it says that data from the CEI tells the story of nearly two decades of year-over-year growth and the adoption of these criteria. They've been working for a long time. They have. They have the long game. They have. And, I mean, this explains why we see even stuff like uh, Dodge discontinuing a, pe- a, pe- a, uh, a gasoline-based Challenger and Charger. And going to an electronic okay. vehicle, an EV set up for their Challenger and Charger line. Mm-hmm. You're like, why would you do that? Well, because of the fact that they were getting, they were being taxed based on their carbon footprint, and they were having to buy credits from companies like Tesla, and they were being forced to compliance. So the best way to do that was to get rid of these gas guzzlers. It's and if they do that, you rank better on an ESG. For because funding, climate change, yeah, and you get more funding from shareholders, which affects somebody like me who wants to get a challenger. Yeah, right. Like, and my point is that their decisions up there are affecting us down here, not just from an idealistic perspective, but in a real world perspective, in a real world fashion. It's it's limiting the products that we have available to us. It's limiting the way that we can express and live our lives. And it's all being done to bring us to heal. Mm-hmm. Like this is a this is an organized tactic. Oh, it really is. 
right? And, and this is part of a great reset. Mm-hmm. This is coming straight out of World Economic Forum policy. It is. To which so many companies, I mean, not countries, not companies, so many countries have already signed on to. And this is why we see this being rolled out with very little fight, very little pushback from the public. And it's yeah, done it's- in ways that we don't quite understand. Like if you hear mm-hmm. CEI, DEI, you're like, what? I don't, I, I don't know what that is. Right. You hear ESG, you might think you picked that up from a bad time in the red light district. But, you know, you, you don't know that this is having to do with sustainability issues. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff is going over people's heads and it's on purpose. Yeah. Yeah, it's intentional. But it's being coordinated by power brokers that are using it to engineer society. That's the mm-hmm. real thing. And they're being financed by a wicked system, by a system of evil that wants to take over and dominate humanity, control the earth in order to control the heavens. Yeah. This is I mean, an that's where orchestrated, we see, integrated system. Yeah, and that's that's why we see the the um, polymorphic sexual perversity. Yeah, because the ones that have instituted the the money system that we have, they um, believe and practice the Kabbalah, whose principal deity is Einsof, who's a hermaphrodite, and they actually believe that the closer you can be like Einsof, the more divine you are. That's how like. Um, in one report, it said that in 2022, LGBT identification was up, had ticked up to 7.1%. That doesn't even mean those are practitioners. Those are just, that's just people who say they identify that way. Right. And you go back one, um, one decade in 2013, 96.6% of adults identified as straight. Only 1.6 identified as gay and lesbian and 0.7% identified as bisexual and they have they have implemented this for multiple decades they're changing the moral and sexual landscape crap don't add up what do you mean if you're involved in 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 lesbian or gay lifestyle right Uh uh-huh that was making up how much the percentage a decade ago um Gay and lesbian, 1.6%. And then if you were bi, meaning you were swinging through both of those, that was making up how much your percentage? 0.7%. Okay, so total, that's like what, 1.7%? It was 1% no, for be, the... Unless I lost my numbers. For the first one, it was what, 1%? 2.3. It'd be 2.3%. Okay, 2.3% of the population. How'd they reproduce? How'd they grow their numbers? Huh. That's interesting. How in the hell do you actually participate in an action that doesn't involve you reproducing and somehow grow your numbers? Propaganda. Mm. Now you're gonna upset some people, Mr. Dean. <laughs> Sexuality is it's not okay. a choice. I'm used to it by now. Sexuality is not a choice. <laughs> you're, you're, I don't mean to belittle people, but there are those who strongly feel that you were just born this way. I, coincidentally, to be born this way would mean you'd have to come from the action of two heterosexual people. But I won't go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> if they're born this way, then how could you be propagandized to become that way? Hmm. If you're going to believe the science, 
And the signs of numbers <laughs> and statistics would seem to say that there was a growth in the 10 decade period that we were reviewing. When ten it year. comes, say what? Not 10 decade, 10 ten year, year period. One decade. Exactly. Yeah. That we were reviewing. It would seem to suggest then that sexuality may be a bit more fluid than what we'd like to admit. And that it is a decision that can be influenced by propaganda that is influenced mm-hmm. by the financing that comes from these companies that have to conform to social reengineering protocols. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm, that sounds thin. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, we talked that we talked about that in our Broken Arrow series. If you can encourage people into transgenderism and homosexuality, then it's fluid and you can be convinced out of it. Exactly. That's crazy. That's crazy. But yeah, it's these religious groups that are pushing this and they believe that the utter commitment of sin is what is is going to bring Einsoff's return. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which gives them motivation to sin as much as possible and then go beyond that and find new ways to sin. Because that's, that's <laughs> the, the... What? My mind needs help. I just imagine like Apple's keynote. Welcome to Apple or, or whoever. Welcome to Fig Tree Inc. Where we have the <laughs> latest in new sin technology that is able to do sin <laughs> so much faster than last year's model. We have we have a sin pro that will help you sin, but we also were able to introduce, we put our crack team together and we were able to introduce sin ultra, which takes two sin pro chips, <laughs> syncs them together so that you can perform sin at an exponentially faster rate than you were able to last year. This is sin on a whole new level. This is sin as it has never been done before. This is sin intelligently. Ladies and gentlemen, sin 7.0. I imagine like year after year. year. (laughs) How do you come up with new sin? I don't know. I I don't know, but every year they come up with some new sin that we have not (laughs) seen before. This is amazing. They're doing it better than the other guy. Operation Red Pill should do a commercial. That would be amazing. You know, we would get sued by Apple so quick. Oh, probably. Oh, that'd be horrible. I'll be CEO, (laughs) Tim Bake. It's not a a spinoff of Tim Cook. It's just Tim Bake. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) I'm going straight. Straight to corporate jail. Oh, man. Chris, we're going to take us for all of our little assets. We're we're going to be done (laughs) off the air. Ironic thing is half of these are, are Apple products, so they would just get what they gave us. Right, right. <laughs> here, here, you go. here you go, Mr. Bake. You can have it back. You can have it back. Right. I'm, I don't want to need it where I'm going. I'm just going to memorize scripture. There you go. That's, That's all the I thing got. to do. Before they Moving change on. that. Before, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeez. DEIs. Last one on the list. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. I like to, to rearrange the levels a little bit. D-I-E. I think it's a better better title for what it does to a company. I like that because when you say DEI, I always think of Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. Really? It's all it was the first time I ever heard those put together. So I always have, I always have to be like that's that's not what it means. It's not NASCAR Jason. Okay. That's so funny of all the things you could have thought it meant. Like I exactly. Dale Earnhardt was not <laughs> on my radar. <laughs> you don't know what I'm into, Christopher. This is true. Anyone that's listened knows that every week I'm like, "What?" 
Exactly. I didn't know you were into that. This week you found out I got weed man across the way. Not that I use. <laughs> just that I know. I'm witnessing to him. <laughs> He's going to make the show one day. Oh, man. That's great. <clears throat> Diversity, equity, and inclusion refers to organizational framework which seek to promote the fair treatment and full pers- participation of all people. Doesn't sound bad. No, that sounds pretty particularly, decent. Yeah, particularly groups who have historically been underrepresented or subject to discrimination. So, I mean, on the surface, they, they polish the turd real nice. <laughs> but on the, on the basis of identity or disability, these three notes, diversity, equity, and inclusion, together represent three closely linked values which organizations seek to institutionalize through DEI frameworks. Again, you get scored on these things based off of how well you score depends on whether or not investment companies invest in you. Mm-hmm. So diversity and inclusion were, for me, they were kind of the, the more difficult ones to wrap my mind around and, and see the problem with. You were cool with equity, but those two didn't, they didn't, they didn't rep for you. No, I'm not cool with equity. That was the first one. I'm like, clearly. No, okay. This, I didn't mean cool that way. I meant you, you understood equity, but diversity yeah, and inclusion yeah, yeah. were hard to conceptualize. I got it. Right. So I had to work on it. And I'm like, what, what is, what is the problem? Like, so why I was thinking like, why do we even institute diversity and inclusion? Because it's to fight against forced uniformity and forced exclusion. I'm like, okay, I get that. But then I was like, so why is it a problem? And then I was went back to Larry Fink, forced behaviors. I think it's great that we can naturally be diverse, right? That any company can can naturally represent whatever people or ideals, you know, that it's it's surrounded in culturally or ethnically, right? Okay. But when you go forcing diversity. I mean, just like the, the Rob Schneider clip that you were talking about, Mm -hmm. that's when best practices and, and how to properly run a business gets thrown to the wayside because you're forcing inclusion. Maybe you're including people that, that don't need to be included. Hmm. You know, maybe they're not good for business. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not, maybe it's going to be destructive, but if we're dedicated to forced inclusion, you don't get an option. There's no opt you know, we out. Should, right, right. We should want the very best doctors and pilots and carpenters and teachers, not necessarily the most diverse. Now, if they are diverse, cool. But, you know, we talk a lot about the, um, the nature of truth being exclusive. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. That if, it's, if it's true, then it has to exclude everything else that's not truth. Well, I think the the... The very nature of, um, like, it's not exactly the same, but it's very similar. Like, if you have a job or you have a position that needs filled that has certain requirements, it's it's within the nature to understand that not everyone is going to be able to fit those requirements. Exactly. Not everybody yeah. can be a wide receiver. Right. Exactly. Mm, so in the very, there's a lot of people. <laughs> some people that might qualify for that. Let me take that back. Not not everybody <laughs> out of all the positions on the football team. Why did I have to pick one that has an, an immediate euphorism <laughs> attached to Especially it? Especially because we talked about widespread. Exactly, I think that's what triggered like, it. Oh man! I was like, oh, no, man. not a wide receiver. No, I take it back. <laughs> you know, not everybody can be a quarterback, <laughs> right? <laughs> or a head coach. <laughs> not not everybody is equipped to say, but that right. that speaks to the fact that there is not full equality 
we're not all equal. We all no, have we not. have different capacities, different capabilities. You know, we're at different gift sets, different talents. You can't throw us all together and expect us to be equal in every area. Do you know? Right. I looked at it's funny. I, the two the two MJs in my life, Michael Jordan and Michael Jackson. Okay, both very skilled in their various areas, right? But they did a mm-hmm. music video together called Jam, and okay. it was really funny to see the two of them together. Though it was the first time I noticed, wow, I think God designs people based on what they're supposed to do. Okay, like Michael Michael Jordan has an athletic body; he's tall, a little bit lanky. You know, he can move around the court, whatever, but he cannot dance to save his life <laughs> at all. That's but funny. then I saw Michael Jackson actually dance. And I was like, you have a performer's body. I've never noticed this. Like, hmm. all of your moves are crisp. You're, you're, you're very lean. You mm-hmm. have zero fat. You don't have a lot of muscle either. So when you move in very precise movements, there's not a lot of excess movement under your clothing. So it looks precise. Which makes the dance move look clean. Mm-hmm. Why not look that way for somebody else that was a bit bulky or someone else that was overweight? You, right. you have like a performer's body. Your clothes fall on you in a certain way that makes it visually cool for you to dance. But you can't okay. play basketball worth three cents <laughs> at all. Like this man was literally dribbling the ball on his knees. It sounds horrible. And crawling between Michael Jordan's legs like a three-year-old. <laughs> Right, I know it's all bad, Christopher. I, I've I've given up this whole episode. <laughs> Did Michael Jordan change positions to a wide receiver? No, no. He looked at him like, "Are you kidding me? You're gonna just dribble through my legs? Like, time out, coach. <laughs> what that's do I do crazy. with the with the forty year old, three year old? Yeah, that's nuts. Right, but they, the point is, they're not the same. Right. They're very gifted in their in their unique sets and capabilities, but they are not the same. I think we have to understand that. And I think these these agendas deny that reality. And more importantly, they deny the fact that a God would create people with unique abilities and they treat people as cookie cutter, Mm -hmm. which is what you would want if your goal is to produce androids. Interesting. Which they've stated is part of what they want to do. It's the reason the educational system is set up the way that it is. They don't huh. want to produce thinkers, right? They talked about that. We don't right. want to produce doctors. We don't want to produce men of letters. We don't want to produce men of learning. We've got that in spades, so to speak. We mm-hmm. want workers. Workers who can just do a job. That's it. You don't need to be a unique human being with different gift sets and a unique purpose. You need to be interchangeable. If you can't do the job, then the next one down the list can do the job, and we'll just discard you like scrap. Yeah, that's crazy. This stuff is mind-boggling. It's horrible. I mean, uh, even the distinction of men and women, they're taking away. Exactly. We're all exactly the same. And I I find it, I I personally find that offensive. Because I am quite happy I do not live on a planet full of men. Mm Mm-hmm. Quite happy God created women. They have some very unique attributes. (laughs) That are very appreciative. I'm very, very appreciative of you know? good. And the whole idea of just putting us, meshing us all together like we're all the same, I find that offensive. Yeah. And you should. You should. You don't seem as offended. It's offensive. I'm not quite as offended, though. 
That's because you have a Kayla. But if you go home tonight and you have a Kyle. Yeah, that'd be a problem. Are you going to be a little more offended, a little more up in arms? <laughs> oh, I will be up in arms. Yeah, well, as long as you're not in Kyle's arms, I, I think that'll be okay. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so this weird, like, just washing everyone and, and, and putting you in a box takes us to equity because that's what they want is they want equality of outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've personally seen this destroy the, in, the work environment and the morale of a workplace. Because so? I, well, I worked for a place that they used to do um, performance-based raises. So you were, you know, to do a particular job and, you know, this is the, like, this is the threshold that, you know, you're, you'll get in trouble unless you perform here. And then anything over that, it would increase your raise that you get every year based off of how well you perform. Okay. Well, they did away with that. Well, now I no longer have incentive to perform better. It doesn't matter how hard you work. You're not going to progress or get paid any more than the person beside you that's just barely getting anything done. It's kind of funny. I'm the type of person I'd be like, well, if you're going to give me uniform pay, then I'm going to give you uniform output. Yeah. So you only get universal job output for me since you guys are going to try to push universal pay. Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the most unnatural uh, aspects to DEI. Because no, nowhere, like I can't think of, uh, of, of any normal, experience equation that the outcomes are the same for everyone. No, my people have a sordid history of proving that fact. Right. We put in a lot of work and we got a lot less outcomes. (laughs) Yeah. But even like the job that institutes it, right. Mm -hmm. It's going to change the outcome of um, profitability or, work ethic or morale, right? Mm-hmm. So there's still changes, even though you're pretending that everyone gets the same outcome, but it changes the way that your company functions. Exactly. E- everything is based off of, of effort and, and all of those things. So it's, it's, it's crazy that they want, no matter how hard you work, no matter what you do, this is the boxer. It's, it's almost like a caste system is what they're trying to implement. Interesting. How do you see that? Because... Like one of the things that astounded me about Hinduism, and when I learned this, they were trying to change the religion, which is which is ridiculous to me. You're not allowed but to do that. Hinduism is a caste system, so if you are born poor, then the caste system is set up that you're the moral good that you can do is be the best poor person. And if you try to make more money, if you try to escape your caste, it's actually a moral bad. And then when you're reincarnated, you'll be lower down on the rung. That if you're born poor, you have to stay poor. And that's how you fulfill your, your purpose. Interesting. And if you're mm-hmm. born rich? Then you have to be the best rich person. But you can't be poor. Like yes, it's but all can tied you get in. richer? It depends. I'm not sure what all the stages are. That's interesting. And if a, if a rich person does bad and becomes poor, I wonder if that's a moral bad. It is a moral bad. You have to fit your caste. Oh, I don't like that. Mm-mm. And it seems like that's what they're trying to put us in. Okay. So that's a form of, of socialism or communism, however you want to look at it. It is, it is a form of control when they're trying to change you and tell you that you can't be yourself. You have to fit the mold that we've presented for you. 
and everyone's mold is the same. Lick the boot. <laughs> and lick it the same. Right. Don't give me too much time. Well, now you're going left of center. It didn't take too long. It only took like a whole episode. <laughs> oh, geez. I'm not editing that out. That stayed. <laughs> You got to give him, you got to give the man just as much tongue as the next guy. Yeah, got to. Got to. <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. Juvenile jocularities aside. So I think, man, th- th- this really can destroy the moral work ethic. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's, it's essentially socialism. Mm hmm. Yeah. I tell you what, man, we, we we talk about an elaborate plot for control. And I think sometimes people just look at us like, nah, you're out there. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not seeing it. This is this is fringe talk. It's just conspiracy theory. But this type of episode, I think, shows that there are so many facets to this Luciferian system of control. Right. This is mm-hmm. this is a beast system. And as a as a body, as as a body of people, particularly people that are are following Christ, we have to be knowledgeable about this. We have to understand what we're dealing with, because it's designed to get over on the next guy. It's designed to confuse people and people are either going to have questions or they're going to they're going to play the peekaboo game. And cover up their eyes and act as though if I don't understand it and I don't see it and I don't dig into it, then it doesn't really affect me. It's not there. Mm-hmm. But there's going to be a precious few people who are going to ask questions, right? They're going to want to know what's happening. And you got to be able to answer those questions. And you got to be able to answer it in a, in a, in a, clear, a clear fashion that communicates, maybe not the nuances, but communicates the general idea to people. So they get an understanding. If you can't do that, then unfortunately, the best you're going to end up sounding is something like this. That is not what we have been commissioned to sound like. Nope, it's not good. Right. Scripture says, always be prepared to give an answer of the hope that lies within you. The thing about these systems is they take away hope. They leave a person as soon as you start finding this stuff out feeling hopeless, which is why we try not to end any of our episodes just purely on identifying the problem. Because we serve a God, Jesus Christ is the solution to these problems. What amazes me every time we do these episodes and we start digging into these these various topics is to find out how often the. The, the leading idea that's really pushing forward these agendas is a direct counteractive position to, to the Bible and a direct affront to God. Like, it's not just a bad idea. It is specifically <laughs> designed to piss God off and do things oppositely. Yep. Right. You're like, you, you, you couldn't accidentally stumble onto this. And, ah, well, you know, we were having our last Davos meeting. And before that, we were in our last Bilderberger group. And we just, 
Jim Bob over there. Now, bless his heart. He tries to do the best that he can. He was in here on a, on a gift set from UNICEF. And we let him take meeting notes. But Jim Bob just didn't quite copy the notes exactly the way that we had dictated. And it kind of produces D-E-I-C-E-I thing. <laughs> okay, it was the, the slight typo. We'll get it fixed next year. You couldn't accidentally produce this stuff. Right. This right. stuff is intentionally designed to produce debt slaves, to enslave humanity. It's so critical to understand that. The enemy comes to steal, kill, destroy. Those seem a little bit redundant until you start taking them apart. Yeah, he steals, he kills, and he destroys. I don't even know what the difference is between kill and destroy. Everything I ever killed, it was destroyed. That ant got destroyed. I put my boot on (laughs) Okay, but when you start looking at it and you understand the language, it's you 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 definitely want to to destroy humanity in a way that's it's just absolutely crazy. So still kill, destroy. When you look at mm-hmm. the wording, when it comes to kill, it really means you you, you want to sacrificially slaughter. You when it comes to stealing, it means you, you want to steal in a way that even enslaves and traps people. And destroying leads to the ultimate abolishment of humanity. This is essentially what the enemy wants to do. To enslave, sacrificially slaughter, and ultimately abolish humanity as a whole. The, the um, steel part definitely sticks out because, you know, you talked about Satan and his commerce. Mm-hmm. Before, so it has me kind of, you know, interpreting these things a little bit differently. So if he's coming to steal and he's known for his violence and his commerce, I was like, okay, that means a little bit more than just like taking my apple away. <laughs> right. But we, we have to begin to, to look at these things in this sense and understand exactly what it is we're up against. Like this kingdom is designed to to completely take away and upend God's created order and displace God as ruler. And they want to mm-hmm. put Satan in his place, take Satan's Messiah, elevate him in the position of Jesus Christ and make the whoever's left of mankind subservient to that and worship that. That's a hell of a position that we got to deal with. And it starts yeah. out with these types of things that we see being unfolded before us. These are the the firing salvos, if you will, of a war. This is the type of stuff that's supposed to let you know you are at war. You understand what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and these it raises these questions like what we've been tackling today, like dealing with American capitalism, coming to the point of realizing no, it's not just a free market system. It really is designed to produce enslavement based on human greed. And the willingness of humanity to sell itself out in allegiance to mammon and allegiance to money in order to get short time favor, to get short time benefits and dividends at the behest of your fellow man. In order for you to feel some sense of fulfillment in life, but leading Mm -hmm. to not just that person's destruction, but your neighbor's destruction as well. It's a dastardly system. May not have always been that way, but that's what it's been molded into today. Capitalism is not what what we were taught in school it was. 
Right, right. And even free market capitalism has its drawbacks due to the limitations of human nature. And the fact that it's based off of an evolutionary model. That makes it even worse. If you're in a world dominated by evil counsels that are that are influencing the affairs of man and doing it in a way that produces their enslavement, that produces their slaughter and the utter abolishment of humanity, which is consistent with what the Georgia Guidestones said they wanted to do, which is bring down the global population from 8 billion down to 500 million. If you're in that type of an environment, you are at war. And if you don't get that, then I need you to avail yourself to a safety briefing that will help re-swivel your head to get you back on track with where you are. Because you might think you safe in the plains of Kansas, but that ain't where you are. In fact, you are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. Out there beyond that fence, every living thing that crawls, flies, or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. If you wish to survive, you need to cultivate a strong mental attitude. You've got to obey the rules. You know, I always overlook the part, if you wish to survive. Yeah. Some people might not wish to survive. Some people might might just be on, hey, this is good enough, kill me now. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to survive in this environment, you have to learn and obey the rules of engagement. Yeah. What's the first rule, my friend? Educate yourself. Seems like a (laughs) no-brainer. Well, if it was a no-brainer, it wouldn't be the first (laughs) rule. But we have the the time-tested word of God. We have the book of codes that dismantles the satanic control matrix. Oh, I love when you say that. Oh, that's <laughs> We've got to know how to use it. Thank you. So scripture tells us where our focus should be. And this, this is a crazy scripture. Matthew six nineteen through 21. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal, but store up yourselves treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the Amplified Bible says, heart, your wishes, your desires, that on which your life centers. Most of the time, people think that the things I care about, then I'll spend money on. This is saying the, that it's the other way around. Christopher, if people are, are allowing their money, i.e. their treasure, to mm-hmm. be invested by investment firms that do not have their best interests in mind. Yep. Then apparently there is a quantum entanglement between a person's money and their heart, Mm -hmm. which means that an investment firm could essentially invest a person's heart in places that person may not want. Yes. That's scary. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. I actually think that that's why they push for more taxes and why taxes are implemented. Explain. Because bef- before you even get your money, your heart, that in which your life centers, a portion of that is already belongs to the state before you get an option. Interesting. They're hijacking your affections with taxation. Interesting. 
Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Scripture also warns us that money never satisfies. Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its gain. This too is vanity. Now I'll push back a little bit. Okay. I don't know if it's money that never satisfies or the love of money. But I think scripture says the love of money. Okay. I think there's a there's a big distinction between the two. Okay. Okay. No, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. And it does say he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Exactly. So that's fair. Or I was a little bit loose loves, with my term. Yeah, but the the other thing is is he who loves abundance. <sighs> I don't think abundance is necessarily wrong. I mean, like Christ said, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. That is a good point. Look at you schooling me on the on the scriptures. Uh, I got to have like one or two good points in an episode, man. Else, else, according to our DEI index, I get removed from my position. Yeah. No, like I, I, I really appreciate your friendship for, for that thing that you, you're, you're fine tuning and, and honing my perspective because I, I missed that. No, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Other people will be mad at me. No, no. I'd, I'd rather be right than wrong. This is also one of those scriptures that always gave me trouble. Why is that? Well, in one of my many lives, corporately speaking, okay. uh, I used to work for an armored car company. Okay. And so I have seen more cash physically in my life than most people would probably dream about. Okay. Like physically seen it. And when you mm-hmm. see it and you handle cash, it's hard not to develop a sort of appreciation for it. It also okay. puts things in life in a in a very weird place. Like I remember one time picking up uh, the smallest bundle of twenties that you could have, and it was it was two thousand dollars. It was one hundred twenty dollars bills in this in this little stack. Okay, in a bundle, and I'm like, that's two grand. I mean, people people fight for that in a in a paycheck week, mm-hmm. or even two weeks. I'm like, this is what you're running around working tirelessly for. You hold a bag of, of 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 ten of those, and it's twenty grand. And you're like twenty grand. Do you know what I could do with this? Technically, you could tape it to your your, your ankles. <laughs> like you don't really imagine those types of things. You know, I mm-hmm. remember going to the the U.S. Federal Reserve and actually being in one of their vaults and seeing more money than I could conceptually wrap my head around. Really. Oh, there's there's so much money sitting around. It's like it's like freight. I mean, it's like if you went to a Porsche manufacturing plant and they just got Porsches around, mm-hmm. right? But that's what they do. They they make Porsches. But you're like, but I mean, this is all the Porsches. Look, I mean, look, this is more Porsches <laughs> I will ever see on the street riding around. Yeah, yeah. It's like that in in one of these vaults, and you get a different concept of money altogether. Mm-hmm. You see it being palletized and shipped, and you're like, "What? Like, how much is on there?" That's a few million dollars. A few what? I'm sorry. Are you sure? Are you sure that's a few million? That's what a few million looks like. <laughs> can I? Can I hold it? <laughs> no. That's stop crazy. hugging the crate. <laughs> I, just, I just don't want to go anywhere else. When you that's get funny. in that environment, I remember thinking about the scripture, "Love of money," and I was like, because part of me was like, "I would love to just be here all day," and then maybe 
take something from here and go live life. Like, if I could just have <laughs> that right there, I would be so great. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? You got to check that whole love of money thing. Like, it's okay gotcha. to appreciate what money can do. It's a totally different thing when you begin to love it. It's like that old saying, it's okay to have money, but it's a problem when money has you. Yeah. Especially if it's tied to a God and it's tied to a religious system, it becomes even more problematic. Yeah. And I think that's definitely something that we have to guard against, but also making sure that we divide properly. Love of money produces this, that I got to make that green bag. You know, I got to make that dollar, that type of thing. Not even necessarily I want to provide for my family. I'm trying to make as much as I can make. Like I know people at, at my job that work ridiculous hours trying to get Mm -hmm. all the money they can. And I'm not here to knock their work ethic, but I'm like, are you working because this is just your work ethic or your drive? Or are you working because you're trying to get all the money you can getting all the money you can starts to affect other parts of your, your psyche. Like, I think it's very interesting how much of our culture is counter biblical, counterintuitive Mm -hmm. to biblical principle. Like the yeah. fact where God would make manna and he'd give it, but he would say, you know, you can't store it. Well, why not? Yeah. In a Western sense, yes, you can. Right. Store it all up. Get as much of it as you can in store because mm-hmm. you never know when that rainy day is going to hit. But that type of mentality actually produces a distrust of God to provide for your very needs. Right. It's completely counterintuitive to that. But so much of our, that's just one example. There are others. So much of our our cultural awareness and perception is built on these ideas that you that are uniquely designed to counteract scripture. Mm-hmm. And loving money is one of those. Right. You know, that song all about the Benjamins. We got uh-huh. like so many different songs that, that we have about just money. Even the song, we got a song called Money. Money, money, <laughs> money, money. Everybody know that song. Ooh, I should I should go work on that 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 last vocal. Yeah, that was a little squeaky. Yeah, little it's kind of outside my key range. If I had more money, I could take singing <laughs> lessons and I I could do better. <laughs> this is just a lack of financial resources. That's all it is. Oh, that's funny. I, I, you know, I don't think that heaven works that way. I don't think there's currency in heaven. Right. Well, there's a reason Jesus says that he's our daily bread. I thought you were going to unveil that. You just paused. Well, I didn't know if you were going to ask or whatever. You just had a blank look on your face. Oh, my no, that bad. we have that we have to go back to it daily. Mm-hmm. You know, there's you can't. There's one of the issues with with Western Church is you think you get enough Jesus on Sunday to carry you through the week, and that's not how it works. Unfortunately, spend, it doesn't. No, you can spend all day on Sunday, but you still need Jesus on Monday. You need him as soon as you walk out after spending yeah. all day at church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a continual exactly. tie and entanglement to them that you don't mm-hmm. get out of. And that you don't, you know, hopefully, you wouldn't want to get out of. But it right. really gets impeded when we start getting entangled with other gods and other systems. Mm-hmm. And debt slavery is one of those ways that the enemy begins to work and weed his way back into our lives. And I think we really have to be cautious of that. We do. Because it's not just like biblically reprehensible, but it's not going to, um, you won't be satisfied. It's not going to produce within you what you need. 
You know, and there is a there is a measure. I don't want to say a measure. I I want to say I understand that in part. I I, I get that. Like money never satisfies. It's okay mm-hmm. to use money as a tool, but I think when we try to use it to satisfy that hole that's within us, that's totally different. Right. You know, no problem. Let's, what were you gonna say? Oh, I was just gonna say because we were designed to have that hole filled by Jesus. Exactly. Like, there's nothing wrong getting, let's say, a real nice car. Mm-hmm. But getting that real nice car so I feel better about myself. And so I I hate myself less or I like myself more or I feel superior to others who don't have it. And so I, I'm getting a sense of superiority out of that and re re uh, calculating my identity. Now that's a whole subset of different issues. My identity should not be based on the automobile I drive. Right. It should be based right. on what my creator has said about me. My worth should not be based on my superiority or perceived superiority to others. It should be based on what my creator has said about me. Right. Like, I think those are mm-hmm. the distinctions. And it's so easy to blend them together and not see the difference between use money as a tool. Do not allow money to use you. Right. No, that's a good point. Thanks, man. And I think it's also important to, to recognize that. We are programmable. I don't necessarily like that term with transhumanism on the rise, but we can change. You know, he who loves money won't be satisfied means you don't have to love money. You can cultivate your desires, mm-hmm. right? We, we can change. We can, we can delight in the things that we want to delight in. That's why scripture anticipates this, this kind of issue. And in Psalms 37, four, it says, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. This one gets taken out of context a lot and he will give you the desires of your heart is usually the only thing that's communicated. Yeah. But you got to take that first step or that first part of it, delight yourself in the Lord. This means that if you, if you put the time in to cultivate your desires and orient them to God and you desire God more than you do money, he promises to fulfill that desire and he'll meet you in that place. And that's dope. Yeah, that's awesome. And that takes us to rule two. Man, and rule two is so important because you, you can't cede any ground to your enemy. And so much of this fight that we're in is about the affections and the, the, the fealty of mankind toward what spiritual camp are we going to be subservient to which one are we going to be involved in which one are we going to put our efforts and heart behind right Mm -hmm. and there's such a fight for that there's a fight to make sure that we don't actually decide to side with yahweh decide to (laughs) side it's a lot of sides deciding (laughs) to actually give our our allegiance to the most high and ironically it's it starts out many times in small doses and we talked earlier about this trauma that people experience. A lot of this trauma is is carried out through finances, corrupted finances, limited choicing, the where people grow up, where they're allowed to have their houses, the type of clothing that they go in. I mean, we got such a wide range of listeners. You know, it, it would be remiss for me to think that none of our listeners have ever had to deal with any of these types of problems, whether it's housing transportation, clothing, you know, it's touched our lives. Mm-hmm. And, and that yeah. stuff, especially in your formative years, can be so critical to your mindset. It can be so traumatizing. 
right? And a lot of the stuff is controlled by finances. Yeah. There, there's a human decision that goes into that, sure, but a lot of it is financially motivated. Somebody profits off of our suffering. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting to me that it almost comes down to that fight for just one small inch. You know, Satan is a master at taking an inch and turning it into a mile, which means we have to be just as motivated to fight for every square inch of our life and not give up ground. I think Al Pacino put it best when he said this. On this team, we fight for that itch. On this team, we tear ourselves and everyone else around us to pieces for that itch. We claw with our fingernails for that itch. Because we know when we add up all those inches, that's going to make the fucking difference between winning and losing. It's the guy who's willing to die who's going to win that itch. And I know if I'm going to have any life anymore, it's because I'm still willing to fight and die for that itch. Because that's what living is. The six inches in front of your face. Now, what are you going to do? Yo, we're not motivated like that team was to fight for those six inches, for that even five inches, four inches, three, two, or just that singular inch. And our relationship with God, you're not going to make it. Right. And thankfully, God is wise enough and smart enough to realize not only are we going to fight, we're going to need weaponry. We're going to need we're going to need guidance on how we do that. So he gives us the Bible and he provides us with a biblical counteroffensive strike package that gives us three objectives to carry out when we're under fire. Number one, expose the enemy's position. That's what we're doing here today. Talk about these things that are going on in the background that nobody sees. Try to get an understanding of it. You know, Ephesians 5, 11 tells us don't have any fellowship with the things that you find out, the works of darkness, but you expose them. Mm-hmm. It's a key thing to do. Second thing is we have to resist. We have to find ways of resistance. Part of that is not, excuse me, agreeing to conformity. Not just going along with the status quo, not acting like, okay, well, in this particular instance, let me try to find ways of diversity and inclusion. Let me find ways to to appease the environment, so to speak. Let me find ways to reduce my carbon footprint. Let me find ways to buy into the system. No, you have to resist it. James 5, 7 gives you that authorization. Subject yourselves to the authority of Scripture. First, fair, foremost, paramount, Scripture. The authority of Yahweh's word, of the Most High's doctrine. That's what you submit yourself under. It supersedes everything else. That is what a true follower of Christ has to submit themselves under. And then you use that to resist the authority and that the devil is trying to establish in the earth. And then lastly, third objective, demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against what God has said is true. That's my favorite one. That's one of the most important ones, because if you don't, then people are kept from knowing God. The stuff that that uh, (laughs) for all episode, I wanted to call this guy Ray Finkel. 
<laughs> I'm like, it, you said he was talking in, in circles. I was like, well, Finkel is Einhorn, and Einhorn is Finkel. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. But oh, the stuff that Larry Finkel was saying that you have to con- you have to force change. You have to fight against that. Once mm-hmm. that's been exposed, you have to resist it. And in ways that we can, ways that are, are, are allowable for us legally, we have to begin to, to demolish those things. You, you demolish the argument first and foremost. And you're, that's going to come up through conversation. It's going to mean talking to people. It's going to mean, like we said earlier, educating yourself. Get familiar with the topics. Listen to something like like ORP. Listen to this episode. There are other things that you can listen to that will get, begin to familiarize yourself with what is really going on. And it's so critical to understand that because a large measure of what our enemy, what the dragon is counting on is forced impotence due to incompetence, due to ignorance, due to lack of understanding. Scripture is clear. God's people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The enemy counts on that lack of knowledge. Many times he hides things so that you don't know. But there's such a degree of apathy that's present in our culture that even if he didn't hide it, a lot of people wouldn't care to learn it anyway. Mm-hmm. It's boring. What's this guy do with anything in the world? I want to go back to my I want to go back to my Avengers. I'd rather <laughs> spend time looking at that than me having to crack open a book or or look on YouTube or do a little bit of research on the phone. I'd rather play Candy Crush or whatever's hot in the streets right now. <laughs> is this Candy Crush hot in the streets? I don't know, man. I'm out the Candy Crush game. All right. All I, right. The only thing hot in my life is ORP. That's all I'm constantly doing. <laughs> all yeah, the time. No ORP and PRO. We should have named it What's that. PRO. Well, it's just ORP backwards, but it also spells pro. Right. We should have named it that. And we and then our acronym could have been pro. Pill red operation. Hey, everybody likes to do stuff backwards. If they follow <laughs> the rule. No, no, no. If they follow That's the rule, they would end K. up they'd end up reversing it the right way and they'd come up with Operation Red Pill. So hey. It, <laughs> it'll work. But all of that okay. said, man, it leads us to rule three, which is you know, we gotta pray like it's all up to God, but work like it's all up to us. Yes. Yes. I think I think some of the stuff that we can pray about is is one pray for the wisdom how to navigate this economic minefield. I think that's brilliant. That that's absolutely essential. Yeah, got to. I think we can pray that God helps refocus our economic goals as well. Mm-hmm. You know what what exactly are we trying to do while we're here? And then taking a page out of your book, I think we should repent for our corrupted love for money and and the things that it provides because I've been guilty of that. I think that's so important, man, because our our Again, our culture, our, our, our nation was dedicated to all pagan gods. That includes mammon. It mm-hmm. includes the god of greed. Like, like, might, Gordon, go ahead. like Gordon Gekko said, greed is good. And in the second Wall Street movie, it says, and it's legal. And yeah. we got to understand that in, that in that environment, we've welcomed in gods that are they're they're not fighting for our pocketbook, right? That that piece of paper that's in our pocketbook that says Federal Reserve note, it is just paper backed mm-hmm. by nothing. Yeah. Not even backed by gold. What they're fighting for is our heart and our allegiance. And there's so much of, of our culture that is just awashed in materialism 
and awash mm-hmm. in this idea that if I can have, if I can acquire more, I'll be better. But but sometimes it doesn't even look like that. Because if you don't have the more or you don't have the means to get better, sometimes that same level of love just looks like being really down and upset that you don't have those things and that you can't get them. And that's where it gets tricky to really analyze your heart there. Because you might not be able to, to grasp for everything and get all the money that you can, but just that internal unrest at not having the more that you want is not a good thing either. Yeah, and it's always important. How do you how do you define enough? Mm-hmm. Just a little more. That's it. And then, then I'll have enough, just a little more. It's mm-hmm. interesting how closely greed and lust are related. That's interesting. They they almost seem like twin sisters. Okay. Because the Bible says lust is never satisfied. It would seem as though neither is greed. And we're seeing a greedy person who's like, nah, I got enough. I'm good. Right. I'm good. I'm good. That's enough yachts. <laughs> man, I, I got enough Florida mansions. I'm I'm good. I'm good. I'm, try, I'm trying to give back to the community, man. I, I want the other man to have a little something left. <laughs> no, that's yeah. a good point. I, I think they're closely related. Okay. And it would make perfect sense in our culture that is that is highly sexualized for it to also be a culture that works off of greed. Mm-hmm. And I think you're spot on. We have to repent for for a a an appreciation of lo- of money that extends beyond its its rightful place. Yep. And repent isn't just feel bad about it. It's turn and change. Exactly. Exactly. And speaking of turning and changing, I think that takes us to the work. We've talked before on the podcast about voting with your dollar. I think it's still important. I mean, it it works. But in this context and now understanding how investment management companies work, don't surrender your vote by giving these investment companies your money because they're voting on your dollar. They're using the, the money that you give them and voting what they want. So I think, I think it, it, it goes you know both ways. Vote with our dollar, but don't let other people take it and vote for us. And that's difficult, man, because a lot of us, in this system, and to no fault of our own, the system's almost designed to keep us in, in, in plugged into that, mm-hmm. right? So many of us have got 401ks that are, that are managed through mutual funds that are probably invested exactly like this. Yeah, that's a good point because I think, I think my, my 401k is through Vanguard. I do have a Vanguard 401k as well. Yeah, And I've got one through a, a couple other companies. And so while we're not out offering financial advice, it may be good for people to research what other things can you do with your 401 money. Because it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have to sit in a mutual fund. You can't actually get assets with it. You can invest in precious metals with it. There are mm-hmm. other things that you can do besides the standard quo. And most of us don't even realize, what is a 401 for? 401k was actually designed for each person to have access to a stock market as a means of preserving financial wealth should there be another collapse or crash. Hmm. I didn't even know that. Yeah, but it doesn't. It, it's still part of the system. Doesn't mean you right. can't make some profit from 401 or we're not saying that you, you can't necessarily you know generate some sort of revenue from it. But what we are saying is it's bigger than that. 
mm-hmm. you have to really look at how things are, what they're designed to do and make the best possible, the smartest decision you can, not just financially, but also spiritually. Right. Right. That's good. Thanks, man. And I know a lot of us live paycheck to paycheck, but, and I'm, I mean, I'm right there with you. I am a paycheck to paycheck person right now due to, you know, changes in my job, but life can't be about money. And I, I am not naive to the reality that day in and day out, your actions are colored by what you can afford and what you can do and what you can't do. Cause you just don't have the money. Like that's, that's the reality that I'm living in right now. But that can't be life. Life can't be about money. We have to learn how to be. And it takes work to be content with what we have, even if it's little. Wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. First of all, you're not going to speed past that like you didn't just say what you just said. There are wives all around the world that are just upset by your last <laughs> statement. I can hear it right now. Just, what did he say? <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, dude, do you think we'll ever get more mature? I hope so. Let's let's <laughs> let's add that to the thing that we can pray for. Our maturity. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, somebody just needs to. That's the only thing they pray for is that we get more mature. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <clears throat> We also need to realize that um, our success isn't measured by how high we get on the corporate ladder hey, or by we, how well. Before we skip yeah. to that, just back back one to, to what you were saying with being content with what God provides. Yeah. That, that might seem like an anathema to a person. Like, that's just so unreal, right? Like, I can't imagine life without money. And I, I okay. get that. But the irony is we live in such a financially precarious world that our financial markets could be upturned overnight. Mm-hmm. The $20 in your pocket could be worthless tomorrow morning. Yeah. And then you don't have money. Like, what would you do? It's so weird for a person to kind of wrap their mind around that. Like that one of the things that money seems to provide is a godlike status of provision. Yeah. And so the idea of trusting God, like when you were saying this, I was thinking to myself, really, what will my life be like if I didn't have money? I was like, I don't think I'm ready to live that level of life. Like if I huh. if I had to go hunt for food or if I couldn't go hunt for food, trusting that God will make ways for me to be fed. Mm-hmm. Restricting my appetite so that I'm fed at God's timetables and not my own. <laughs> That's a rough one. That, see what I'm saying? You know, what if I needed I need to put some fuel in my vehicle so I can get to work? It's much easier for me to swipe my card and go to the, the, the fuel station. It is totally different for me to pray and be like, God, will you supernaturally combine these hydrocarbon atoms and make more fuel for me in my vehicle so I could go to work? Yeah. Not impossible for God, but yo, like the faith level for that way out there. Money is way easier. Yeah, I think the uncomfortable truth is mm, we trust money more than we do God. I think you are 100% on. That is the thing. And I think that one stings a little bit. It does, but I think that's the reality. That's really what what you're fighting with when you're talking about really be content 
with what God provides, not with what money provides. Right. That's, that's hard. And you need a, it's funny. I didn't think I was going to get to this, even though this was the thing the Holy Spirit had told me, don't forget to say. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. I just didn't know where where it was going to fit. But one of the things that is essential for this type of system to, to exist is this idea of, uh, have you ever heard this thing about overproduction? Mm-hmm. You've mentioned it before. Okay. It's, it's this idea that if you're producing at full capacity, what you can produce, it will exceed what, what people can consume. Like they just mm-hmm. don't need all of what we can produce. So right. in order for, for profiteers that are in a mass production environment to continue to stay in business, you have to create a consumer driven environment that constantly takes, even if it doesn't need what it takes. Interesting. Exactly. In an environment where we're relying more on God and not money, we'd also have to move from not being as much of consumers as we've been trained to be. Part of the problem in being a consumer is it teaches you not to develop your inner life. It leads to what we would call the empty self. And the empty Mm -hmm. self is a false version of what God has created you to be. They all play together in this, this, this battle of contorting and perverting you from what God meant for you to be into what we become in this satanic environment. And money Mm -hmm. plays a big role because finances play a major role. Yeah. All right. Thanks. I I got it out there. Cause you know, I don't want want God mad at me. Oh, Jason, there was something that you were going to say. <laughs> Christopher, I'm so happy that you reminded me. Thank you once again for fulfilling your obligation <laughs> to remind me of what I needed to know. Oh, I'm such a terrible friend because I forgot. I wasn't going to say can you, can you repeat that? I don't think the people in Uganda heard that. Just one more time. <sighs> I'm such a terrible friend. Oh, say it with conviction, though. No. <laughs> Not anymore. Uh, but another thing that we can do is like I was saying, it's not about corporate ladder. It's not about keeping up with the Joneses. There's really a, a change in our mindset that we have to take that we actually have a job to do here. And it's not about making money. We are commissioned to be salt and light. And we're commissioned to take the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone that we meet. Right. And the beautiful thing about that. I mean, it's really our mission. Like, that's why we're still here. We can do that, and it's almost impossible to take away from us. Exactly. You can take my job from me, I can still tell people about Jesus. You can take my money from me, and I'll tell whoever I'm trading, my, bartering my eggs with about Jesus. You put me in prison, guess what? There's a bunch of people that need to hear about Jesus. That's hilarious. Outside of, like, death and solitary confinement, I mean, I'm still going to be able to do my job. As a thinking believer. Exactly. You take my job from me. I'm going to tell you, give your heart and life to Jesus because your behind belongs to me. We can still talk about <laughs> Jesus even on the way out. Oh, that's funny. Oh, that, that, that's poignant. <laughs> but you're absolutely right, man. That's the one thing that this is really about. Yes. It's not the nine to five. It's not the work. Mm-mm. It's really about being able to share Christ. And interestingly enough, he was a vagabond. Now, yeah. he did have a skilled trade. Don't get me wrong. He had a skilled trade. He was a carpenter. He knew yes. how to actually make things and, and make a living, if you will. But he went from town to town. He was doing things. 
Yeah. He was living that type of life to you. I don't think many of us want to live. Mm-hmm. Like, we ain't got nothing to eat, man. Just You got two fishes. These ain't even seasoned fishes. These ain't from <laughs> Long John Silver's. You know, give me that, and I'll, I'll make something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to survive the Bible times, okay bro. <laughs> it would have been very difficult for me. Yeah, I believe it. I'm eating that. Y'all got some hush puppies with this? <laughs> Just mission some sauce. <laughs> I appreciate the miracle, Jesus. But um, <laughs> Can you miracle some hot sauce, please? <laughs> I mean, since we doing miracles. Right. Let's just go go for the gusto. And some collard greens, Lord. I would really appreciate that. <laughs> I'd be eating in the back of the 5,000. Folk would be like, what is that? Sm- How did you get that? Y'all just didn't. You have not because you asked not. Scripture said, neck tomorrow, I'm going to ask for some black eyed peas <laughs> and crab legs. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. But one thing that you can do that actually helps tell people about Jesus is share the show. Yes. Because that's what our show's about. So you spread the word, you know, get it in places that people wouldn't ordinarily hear this. And uh, yeah, h- help us help us do our uh, our mandate. Help us do our job. And for those that have, have, have joined us and have been doing that, thank you. Because there's yes, so yes. many of you that have actually been sharing and, and the show's been growing. And we really, really appreciate that. So for those of you who are doing that, keep doing what you're doing for others. Hey, jump on the bandwagon. Get the word out. Put it in, in your folks' Folks, hands, the people you know, the sphere of influence that you got, throw it in there. Let us do the talking. As you can see, we can we can talk for a minute or two. And I think that'll be beneficial. Now, if you like that and you really want to be part of our operational support team, one of the things you could do is join our Patreon squad. As a matter of fact, we had two new people join. Ah, we very did. recently. Yes, we did. Joseph and Matthew, thank you very much for joining. Welcome so to the to crew. It is so yeah, good to yeah. have y'all here. That was a surprise. Looked in there and said, oh, we got more operators. Love mm-hmm. it. Love it. So great. Now, yeah. if you're interested in this, you can get in on the ground level for $5. That'll be our uh, our cover fire tier. And that'll get you all the links and resources that we use to make the episode, as well as access to our full-length versions of all of our episodes. And you can get on the second tier, which is Overwatch, for just $7. Don't even think you can get a quality combo meal from Wendy's. For se- Oh, they do have the four for four. Okay. <laughs> from Burger King for $7. But that seven will get you everything from tier one, as well as access to the actual notes that we use to put together this episode. And then if that just ain't fitting your fancy, you want to go full bore support with this, you can join our top tier level, which is bring the rain. And that's at a $5 or $10 a month. That'll give you everything from tiers one and two, as well as an opportunity to participate in a monthly zoom call with Christopher and myself. And those calls are fun. They're so great. We I think get, it's one of the best parts to do an Operation Red Pill. It is, man. Like every time we, we have people on there, I'm super excited. And then when there are people that normally get on that don't get a chance to make it, I'm like super deflated. I go through such mm-hmm. a wide range of emotions <laughs> on one call. But it, it's funny. only because it's so much fun to interact and people bring such a unique perspective to things. We talk about current events. We get into some of our upcoming projects. And then we like to do this really weird thing where we just open up the floor for questions. And people yeah. ask some of the most mind-bending questions. Mm-hmm. But it's fun. It's a great place to to chat. So if you, if you fancy that, 
hey, go on ahead, join us up for the cost of maybe a Starbucks coffee and a bagel. You can get all of this wonderful ORP goodness. Right, right. And here's the last thing that you can do is remind yourself of what scripture tells us. We are never alone and we're not fighting alone. God has promised to never leave us and we have a community of believers all over the world. And that God intervenes, actually intervenes on our behalf. Tangible action for us. It's a wonderful thing. But one day we'll be free of this corptocracy. One day our hearts will be aligned with truth. And one day we will be under the proper authority, power, and influence of Jesus Christ. But until then, we are deployed to this dystopian rock by our Savior in Chief, the very one that's commissioned us on a seesaw. That's right. We're on a combat search and rescue mission here, people. And be advised, the hostages we're after are likely to be hostile towards us. But you know what? We still got to go get them. Now, our task and order is simple. We're to search for and rescue anyone that can be sympathetic to Christ, but is currently held hostage under Satan's deception. And make no mistake, we will be operating in a hostile environment, but the rules of engagement are clear. Listen up, if you take fire, I expect you to give fire. Now, I need you to keep your head on a swivel out there. You stay frosty, stay faithful, and above all, stay in the fight. That means do not give up, because we're counting on you. You ain't alone out there. We're fighting right next to you, and we'll see you out there again fighting on the front line. 10-4.